excuse my less than 100% voice, I'd like to welcome you to Monster Kid Radio episode 391. This is the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I am opening up this episode of the show with the song Monster Surf Party. It is from the album Monster Beach Surf Party by Jared K. Wood. You can find this at jaredkwood.bandcamp.com. Jared is spelled J-E-R-E-D. Kwood with a C. Bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at MonsterKidRadio.net. Check it out when you're done listening to this jam-packed, giant-sized, epic episode of Monster Kid Goodness. There is a lot to do this week. This is going to be the treat of the trick or treats, uh, or something. I, I I don't know. It's just going to be a big episode. Here's what we've got this week: illustrator, author, Monster Kid, Hammer fan. Alistair Hughes is here this week. So first of all, he and I are going to talk about a monster movie. One of my favorite Hammer films, Dracula, AD, 1972. And after we get done talking about the movie, then we're going to talk about his upcoming book, Info Gothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer horror. That's coming out on Halloween. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the movie. Also, We have another author here to talk about another book. David Accord joins me this week, and we're going to talk about his book that came out not too long ago. It's called Graveyard Groove, A Haunted History of Monster Music, From Monster Mash to Horror Punk. It's the time of year when people start planning their playlists for their Halloween parties. You want to put together the best Halloween mixtape possible? This book is going to get you pointed in the right direction. And I had a great time talking with David as well. But that's not all. Last week was Weird Wednesday here in Tigard, Oregon at the Joy Cinema, and I went and introduced the film Wereskito Nazi Hunter, directed by Christopher R. Mim. After the movie, I chatted with Jeff Pullier and Dominique Lamses about the film. And that's not all. Also in this episode, Rich Chamberlain, the monster movie kid, the Kansas City cinephile and fellow podcaster, tells us about a lot of events, Halloween events, that are happening in Kansas and his neck of the woods. So we've got a lot of that coming up. Also, we have the famous Monsters of Filmland segment submitted by Kenny Blows, where he talks about how Dracula AD 1972 was presented and represented in Famous Monsters of Filmland. And that's not all. We also have listener feedback with my wife, Brenda. There is a lot to get to this week. And I know I sound a little more subdued than normal, and like I said, my voice isn't 100%. I took two of our cats to the vet the other day, and my allergies just went kind of nuts. Not from our cats, but from all the other cats and dogs, and who knows what else was there. I mean, it is Oregon. They could have had Bigfoot in the back for all I know. But whatever it was, it really kind of messed with my allergies, and it's still lingering. So I know I sound more subdued than normal, but believe you me, I am super pumped to get all of this to you in this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. Why don't we start that up right after this? Get back on your train 
and leave us alone. Rumors circling around. Uh, mysterious happenings at night. Uh, strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstadt. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. Starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness. What was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel, malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire oh, for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you! Christopher Neal as Llewellyn, a man of faith locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. Cast you out! Every unclean spirit, every satanic power, in the name and by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ! Back through the Fire and Water Network. Come. Back with the Supermates. I said, come back. Back to... The House of Frankenstein. The Supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but in a half an hour the moon will rise and... I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Hayne. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Jean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Frankenstein. Back. Back. Yes, master. He thinks I'm Dracula. (laughs) Hello, darling. Hello. 
began just as you see here. Do you know what you have just done? You have transferred us in time and space, and I hadn't even set the controls. Now I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe, and at any time. Yes, this is how it began. The adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Who's there? Who's there? Come with us into that strange new world. I cannot guarantee your safety, but I can promise you unimagined thrills. They know we've escaped. They're cutting through the door. Come with us to the petrified forest. Meet the Thars, the blonde giants who have survived the monstrous rule of the Daleks. We must get to the city. They could have scanners here, anything. I'm going back. No, you're not. We'll be killed. We'll never defeat the Daleks. Doctor Who, the brilliant science professor. The young man who triggered off this strange journey. The professor's frightened granddaughter. And the youngster who inherited her grandfather's adventurous spirit. <coughs> Doctor Who and the Daleks. Now you can see them in color on the big screen, closer than ever before. So close, you can feel their fire. So thrilling, you must be there. Barbara, look behind you! Stop the countdown! The bomb will destroy the planet! Monster Kid Radioheads, this is Kenny with your look at Famous Monsters, our today's movie, Dracula AD 1972. This movie had a great feature in Famous Monsters number 97, which came out in April 1973. And this issue features Asylum on the cover, the poster art for the Amicus anthology movie Asylum. It also has a little article on necromancy and Mario Bava's barren blood. The biggest article in this issue was a report on a big monster movie festival in Los Angeles where over 100 movies were shown. There were 1,300 people in attendance, and Ray Bradbury and Christopher Lee were among some of the special guests that were at this special movie festival. It would have been great to be there. Now... 
Let's take a look at Dracula AD 1972. The article starts with a story of how in Europe the film was known as Dracula After Death because of the translation of AD. And Foy decided to use that as a title throughout this issue. He complains of the real title because it dates the film, obviously in this case, as this issue came out in 1973. A synopsis from the LA Times critic Kevin Thomas is used to describe the film. It is a positive review and ends with this comment. It's a very tricky business to let Dracula go through his flamboyant paces in a modern setting, but director Alan Gibson, his clever writers, and capable cast make it work. After the synopsis, some of the questions posed to Christopher Lee about this film and his role as Dracula were transcribed by fans for the article. Here is his answer when asked what he thought of Dracula AD 1972. I have not seen it, so I don't know, but I have very grave doubts about the mixing of the styles and great reservations. The article ends with two additional questions about Dracula in general and a preview of a complete interview with Mr. Lee to appear in a future issue. Dracula 8072 was also mentioned in the letter section. Three young ladies from St. Louis sent a letter after seeing the film. I thought their response was quite interesting. It was always our considered opinion that anything Christopher Lee appeared in was worth going to see. We defended him against those who said he made too few appearances in his movies, but we enjoyed them so much that we would see them five, maybe ten times apiece. Eagerly, we waited for the opening of Dracula A.D. 1972, and when it premiered, we were let down, because it was the lousiest Christopher Lee movie ever seen. It couldn't really be called a Christopher Lee movie, because he couldn't have been in it for more than ten minutes. Even Count Yorga movies were better than Dracula A.D. 1972. It also leaves Dracula in a funny place, dead in the year 1972, whither he goeth next. We can only say, Christopher, how could you? And that came from three, three young ladies in St. Louis, Missouri. We can see that in this Famous Monsters 97, different opinions were shared about this movie. I think even today it divides monster kids. And so let's hear what Derek and his guests have to say. Let's see if they have the same or different opinions about Dracula A.D. 1972. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, what you are about to hear is actually kind of a milestone for me. I've been podcasting for over a decade now, and I've never had anybody on the show from the future. What I mean by that is I've got this week's guest who's from New Zealand who is... 
20 hours ahead of me, Alistair Hughes, the man behind the upcoming excellent book, InfoGothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer Horror, is this week's guest. How's it going, Al? It's going extremely well, thanks, Terry. Greetings from the future. How is it over there? (laughs) (laughs) Very futuristic. (laughs) You have any lotto numbers you can share? (laughs) Oh, I wish. I wish. (laughs) Yeah, me too. No. I'm really excited to have you on the show. You've been writing in quite a bit, and we've been talking by email about the book, and we're going to talk about it, but just initial thoughts. I want to say what I've seen is amazing, and I can't wait to actually have it in my hands. Derek, that's a, that's a huge honor in coming from you. I think, as I've mentioned, friends and family have seen the book so far, and they've been extremely kind. But having that sort of endorsement from someone, you know, with, with your experience and knowledge of the films makes me sort of breathe a huge sigh of relief because someone who knows these films and someone who knows what they're talking about, for them to say that they like it, well, maybe I'm on the right track. So thank you. Oh, I think you're definitely on the right track. You've got the knowledge of these movies that any good Hammer fan is going to have and the talent and the skill that you've brought to presenting the information. You know, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to talk about the book. <laughs> we also want to talk about a movie this week, which is one of my favorites, Dracula 80, 1972. But you know there's something we do with every guest on Monster Kid Radio. I do. I do, yes. We've got to play a round of the Classic Five, and this will be your first time. It will absolutely be my first time, Derek. I'm I'm thoroughly looking forward to this. And look, can can I just say before we start? Yes. It's a huge honor to be on MKR. Wow. I've been listening for years and years. You've inspired me for years and years. So to be actually talking to you is, is a great honor. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening and being part of the Monster Kid Radio audience and part of the whole experience. I mean, without the listeners, I'm just a guy sitting here in my converted dining room talking about monster <laughs> movies to nobody in particular. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Maybe talking about them to my cats or something, you know, that's sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as for the Classic Five, for people who don't know, the Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a this or that, which monster movie do you prefer style question on them. There are no wrong answers. I know we just called it a game. You might call it a conversation starter. We call it the Classic Five. Al, are you ready to play? I certainly am, Derek. Bring it on. <laughs> oh, okay. Here we go. All right. Card number one. This is from the Hammer expansion. Appropriate considering what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. What Hammer film character was the best dresser? What an excellent question. Um, I'm going to have to think about this one, Derek. Yes. I think, just off the top of my head, I love Stephanie Beecham's dress sense. In Dracula, AD 1972. Those fashions are outrageous. <laughs> but uh, she just manages to pull it off beautifully. So I would say Jessica Van Helsing as played by Stephanie Beecham. Important distinction since she's played by somebody else in the next film. Indeed. So, yeah, indeed. Yes. Which, you know, maybe we'll talk about someday. Mm, sure (laughs) well she does look great uh and this film does have some pretty crazy fashions in them i I love it so (laughs) doesn't it just (laughs) that's great all right card number two what classic monster movie needs a prequel wow now let me think i would like to see a prequel to dracula yes 
the Lugosi? Let's say the Lugosi okay. version has its uh, as it is patterned as closely as they could be at that time to the book. Okay. People have always wondered how he became a vampire. Unfortunately, someone turned that into a film a few years ago. But um, Stoker, and we, we may talk about this later, does actually have an origin story for Dracula in the original novel. And to uh, bring that to the screen with Lugosi in the role, I think would just be amazing. That would be solid. Any any chance, any excuse to see Lugosi in another movie, I'm all in for. So, hey. Absolutely. I know we said there's no winners, but you're firing. Two, you're getting two for two here. <laughs> that's, all right. That's good to know. <laughs> Card number three, keeping it with the Dracula theme. This is from the Universal deck. Which movie yes. do you prefer? Dracula's Daughter or Son of Dracula? Oh, Derek, I would definitely have to say Dracula's Daughter. I mean, I'm a huge Lon Chaney Jr. fan. Of all his monsters, it's not really my favorite. And the lead actress in uh, Dracula's Daughter is just mesmerizing, utterly mesmerizing. Even if it was a silent film, Mm -hmm. I would still watch it. Look at me. What do you see in my eyes? Death. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. Please don't come any closer. I... Growing weaker. All your skill cannot help her now. She's under a spell that can be broken only by me. Or death. I am Dracula's daughter. That's one I keep wanting to show Brenda. It's Dracula's daughter. I think she would really enjoy it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what she thinks of it. It was solid, solid film. I was at three. That was card three. So card four. Question number four. Oh, another hammer card. What do you prefer? Hammer horror or hammer science fiction? Interesting one, because hammer horror really came from hammer science fiction. Mm -hmm. And for me, the lines really blur. They certainly do in in the um, book. But um, because mainly of uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, I would have to go with Hammer Horror every time. Lots of good stuff to pick from. For sure. Some really good ones to pick from. Yeah. And let's go to the new in-production deck, core deck number two. Who's your favorite classic Scream Queen? When I was a little boy, (laughs) maybe too little, actually, my parents, who always encouraged me, with classic movies, allowed me to stay up way, way, way past my bedtime on a Sunday night. They were showing um, a series of classic movies to see a film that they knew I would love with all my heart and still do to this very day. And that film was the original King Kong. Hmm. And Faye, 
will always be my number one scream queen. What, what an amazing lady. And um, I still shed a little tear, I think, whenever I read that apparently when, when, when she passed away, they dimmed the lights on the Empire State Building for, was it 15 minutes? Yeah, I, I think that was the very least that they could do for such an amazing woman. Feyrey, yeah. She's amazing. Uh, she, she did a lot. And King Kong is one of those iconic roles, iconic films. I can I can see you being attached to it and and that being the one. I was I I, I was tiny. I, I I forget how how old I was, or rather how old I wasn't. But I I remember when Kong first appears on screen, I just sat there and shouted, "Wow!" Because <laughs> at, at um, that time, and you you'll know this yourself, Derek, being a fan of. Um, classic monster movies mm-hmm. it was often the case that you never really got to see the monster or if you did see the monster it was in the very final reel mm-hmm. or you saw a bit of a claw or a shadow or something but with kong he's right there dead center and uh yeah just an amazing experience which hasn't ever been topped for me i don't think have you had a chance to see it on the big screen at all? I have, in fact. Uh, e- even here in New Zealand, they had a screening um, at one of our o- older cinemas in the capital city. I made sure that I saw that. And, uh, oh, Derek, I think I think that particular movie is always going to hold up, not not just as a, as a fantasy or, or a monster movie, but as a film that sort of showed what uh, the motion picture art form was capable mm. of. Mm-hmm. It was like they, they dreamed as large as they could, pun intended, <laughs> and they found a way of putting it on screen, and, and they achieved that. And, uh, yeah, I think that's just extraordinary. I had a chance to see it uh, in the theater a little bit ago, and there were some people in the theater who were kind of shuffling in towards the end of the film because they wanted to get a good seat for the next movie. And I overheard them talking about how the film wasn't just a great horror movie or adventure movie but just great cinema and man they, they couldn't be further it's true they couldn't yeah. be further from the truth that's you know marion c cooper's mm. vision and what he did man his life was an adventure to begin with and and the work that he did hmm. and that that's absolutely a movie that needs to be made as well right mm. Oh, For sure. man, I would love to see a biopic or even like a little mini series or something just Me about too. everything that he did in the wars and the films yeah. and everything else that he was involved with. Just amazing. Oh, mo- most definitely. And then, you know, they could even re- reconstruct behind the scenes f- footage of making Kong. I mean, it would be. Oh, wow. It would be fantastic. <laughs> Give us an excuse to see the spider pit sequence again, right? Oh, you're right. That would you're be amazing. Right. Yes. I-, I know Peter Jackson <laughs> recreated it back in 2005, but still, mm. it'd be great to see it, see another pass at it. <laughs> it really, really would, for sure. Yeah. Well, that was the Classic Five, and it did exactly what it's supposed to do. It spurred on a whole bunch of different conversation topics. <laughs> it did. It, 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 it certainly made me think, Derek. I, I, I tried to second-guess you, but I didn't see those ones coming at all. So uh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, no, King Kong's fun. Fay Ray's great. Um, mm. You know, everything. That, like I said, I agree with pretty much all the answers you came up with, but oh, again, no, good no right or wrong answers. So. <laughs> All right, so we've played the classic five. Let's talk about a movie. Let's talk about a Hammer film that didn't get a lot of good press when it first came out. And over the years, I feel like it still hasn't gotten as much attention as it really deserves. Mm -hmm. 
But I love it. It's Dracula AD 1972, and it's the dream team. It's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. I don't Mm -hmm. know how you can go wrong with those two. Dracula is back. In the first now Dracula movie, Dracula AD 1972. And with this new motion picture, an unrivaled event, horror ritual. You will participate with a Transylvanian vampire himself, swearing you in as an honorary member of the Count Dracula Society. He comes back from the living dead to extend you his personal invitation. Join me in the horror ritual. You heard it with your own ears from his blood-red lips. Get your honorary membership card when you see the new Dracula movie, Dracula A.D. 1972, and participate in the horror ritual. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. When I watch that film, Derek, it, it reminds me, and I mean this in the best possible way, of a fan fiction movie. Hmm. Um, maybe written by someone who sort of had memories of the original Dracula, or horror of Dracula, as, as you guys call it. <laughs> and um, thinking, I really want to bring Cushing's Van Helsing and Dracula back together again. And I want to have even more action and even more beautiful women and even more vampirism. And that it strikes me that that could have been the starting point for um, this movie. What's interesting about what you just said is uh, guest of Monster Kid Radio, great friend of Monster Kid Radio, filmmaker Joshua Kennedy, mm. made a film of his own called Dracula AD 2015, oh, wow. which was kind of a, a fan fiction-y, fan filmy kind of updating of Dracula, which yes. took a lot of inspiration from this film. And you can even hear the music from this film and that film. Uh-huh. Wonderful. And so <laughs> <laughs> kind of on point that you bring up the fan filminess of this thing, because it does have that kind of, you know, we want to update it. We love Dracula, but how do we make it happen and they just do they they absolutely do there's just something fascinating about it i i, I love the beginning i love the beginning oh man <laughs> and, I, and i know and this is something you talk about in your book yes continuity wise out the window there's nothing you can do to really <laughs> reconcile uh this easily with the other dracula films not that hammer was overly concerned about continuity no. anyway no. with any of their franchises really I don't care. I love the beginning of this thing. It's an action scene. It's a gothic vampire staking scene. It's Cushing and Lee. It's a car chase, practically. It's wonderful. It's it's a, it's a swashbuckling fight. I love all of the Hammer Draculas, but this is better than the climax of many of those films. And it's only the beginning of this film. Right? I mean, how can you go wrong with that? <laughs> It's thrilling. It is such a great climax. And you've got the guy lurking in the background waiting for everything to die down so he can get the ashes. And Oh, you're absolutely right. The beginning of this movie is better than the ending of a lot of Dracula films. (laughs) It is. It is. And uh, when when I was watching it this time, Derek, something struck me. If I was a vampire watching Dracula AD 1972, you know, watching that sequence, I would be thinking... What an evil so-and-so that Van Helsing is, because (laughs) Cushing is so grimly determined to finish 
Dracula off. <laughs> I mean, he, he he's dying and he knows that he's dying, but he puts every last ounce of effort to pin him down and get that spoke through his heart and tear off the rest of the wheel. <laughs> so from from a vampire's point of view, you'd be thinking, that guy's a monster. Well, Don't let him anywhere near me. <laughs> well, until you get to the end of the movie and you see what that Van Helsing does with the <laughs> shovel right. and everything, you're like, well, this is even worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're so right, yes. <laughs> there is just magic between Lee and Cushing, and I know a lot of times they were adversarial, or at least played adversarial characters, yes. but there's just a magic, a spark, a chemistry between the two, and to see them reunited finally. Yeah. Uh, in a Dracula film. This is the first time they appeared in a Hammer Dracula movie since Bride, well, excuse me, since War of Dracula. That's right, yes. Which was a good, what, how many years would have that have been? You know, 20 something years? Yeah. About 20 years? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. There, there were various different reasons for that, as, as, we, as we all know. But, oh, wouldn't it have been great to have more of them? more films with the, with those mm. two two together. And this is why I'm such an advocate of this movie, Derek, and and why I get a little bit exasperated when people, usually people who've, who are going on received wisdom from 20 or 30 years ago, try to put this movie down because it, it's the best gift ever. It really is. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I guess this is something you were going to move, move on to. The contemporary setting, which so many people seem to have an issue with. I mean, the first thing that I want to say is that I think people forget that that's exactly what, what Bram Stoker did in his novel. He took a centuries-old vampire and he put him in contemporary London. It's nothing new. It really isn't. You know... That's something, too, that I think just people who watch a lot of classic horror films might not understand mm. or get. I mean, if they're in it the way you and I are in it, you know, they probably do. But a lot of these classic monster movies from the 30s and 40s, they were contemporary to their time. Exactly. And we watch them and we're like, oh, it's so old and gothic and ancient. It's like, no, they were just making a movie that was contemporary to their time. They had telephones and cars. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not these ancient you know, stories. These are set in what was modern time for them. And that's a really good point. Bram Stoker did it, too, with his novel. He um, did. And, and I, I just wonder if there was anyone in Victorian times thinking, how ridiculous. How ridiculous that he's taking this supernatural being that's hundreds of years old and bringing it into modern London. Who's going to believe that? <laughs> Good point. Good point. And um, I, I think also, Derek, there, there might be something about that particular setting. From what I remember and from what I understand, the, the 70s might have been a fairly grim time for a lot of people you know, growing up in Britain. I, I seem to recall at least it was it was a rather hard time. And I guess people going to, to the movies for a bit of escapism didn't necessarily want to see the era that they were living in depicted on on the screen or misrepresented as as lots of people say. Um, I, I just wonder if maybe there was still a contingency of people who wanted the fantasy aspect of being transported back to Victorian times. But now when, when we watch that, that film, the 1970s is a distant era and a fascinating one. 
And it's 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 my impression anyway that this film has been getting a re-evaluation over over the last few few years. You know, mostly from people who have seen it for the first time or who, who have chosen to go against the received wisdom and, and form their own opinions about it. And the 1970s just seems like an, an utterly fascinating era, which it was. So the era that Taste forgot seems to have moved from the 70s to the 80s. And now people seem to be a lot more interested in what was going on in AD 1972. I do find it fascinating to look at any of these movies. And I think I've said this on the show ad nauseum. Hmm. These movies are not just stories and monster movies. I mean, it's a way to kind of look at what was going on in society and the norms and the mores and everything happening. And this is a literal time capsule. It's even dated for you. So you know exactly when you are. You know? <laughs> Good point. It's got a label so on you it. Know, <laughs> you know you're in the 70s. And I've heard some critiques and read some reviews that, you know, maybe the younger characters speak more like they're in the 60s and the 70s. But I, I don't know. I wasn't there in the UK in the 70s, I don't know. But the attitudes and the storytelling techniques and the way the music is used and the editing and the camera angles, it's all 70s. It's all true 70s there. And yes. it's it's it escapism. It's uh, you know, sociological exploration. It's got it. It's got it mm-hmm. all. This is one of my favorite Hammer Dracula films. One of my favorite Dracula films. Period. Can I ask you, Derek? How how did you feel about the movie when you first saw it? Have Have you always loved it? So when I first saw it, I loved the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I can remember when I first saw it. Uh, it was in the mid nineties, mm. and I was working at a video rental store. And for whatever reason, we were doing some sort of event and we invited a radio DJ to come to, you know, do an ongoing, you know, DJ presentation thing from the video store. Yes. And he and I got to talking between sets for him and he found out that I loved the Universal Monster movies. Mm-hmm. He asked me if I liked Hammer and I was like, well, I, I don't know anything about Hammer other than I guess it's that Peter Cushing guy who's in Star Wars, right? <laughs> I didn't know. So he went home on an extended lunch break and came back with a couple of videotapes. And on these videotapes were the complete Hammer Frankenstein series and the complete Hammer Dracula wow. series. What a gift. And, yo, man, he's like, I got to have these back. It's my only copy. He's like, okay, no problem. You know where I work. It's fine. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, and over the course of a few days, I just mainlined these movies. Mm. I just barreled through them. And they were in order of release on the VHS tapes so I could watch them in order and watch the evolution and progression. I believe I did the Frankenstein films first and then I went through and did the Dracula movies. My initial thought when I first saw Dracula 80s, 1972, I was a little bummed because it meant, as soon as you see the plane, you know, over the opening credits, it meant that we're probably not going to see a gothic Dracula film from Hammer ever again. Mm -hmm. This was, that was it. So I was a little disappointed by that. But as the movie's continuing, especially once you get to the summoning sequence in the church, I didn't care. Mm. I was all in and I thought it was great. And I loved the different ways that vampires were being dispatched. Yeah. Uh, the running water thing. I, I knew the running water thing. Hammer had done the running water thing before, but mm-hmm. never in a modern setting. And I thought that was cool. So, yeah, I was in love with it by the time it was done. I was all in. That's brilliant. That's great. I had a sort of very mixed sort of history with it. Uh, the first mm-hmm. time I saw it, I was, I was 16 years old. 
and it was part of you know New Zealand's uh, long-running series of late-night horror movies. Okay. And um, the following day at school, I drew a picture, <laughs> a really bad one, of Dracula writhing in the pit. You know, at the very end of the movie, <laughs> with the, the stakes coming through his cloak and blood going everywhere. And I, I, I drew this for a guy who was more a, an acquaintance than a friend. He was actually a rugby player. We, we had absolutely nothing in common apart from the fact that he really loved this film. So I, I uh, drew him this picture. And years later, when I was at university, we kind of ran into each other. And uh, I found out that he still had that picture pinned on his wall. <laughs> That's amazing. Wasn't that lovely? (laughs) I was deeply ashamed of the picture, but it was just nice that it obviously made a huge impression on on, um, this guy as well as me. But um, fast forward a few decades, Derek, and when I was a sort of awkward young adult, Mm -hmm. I put the movie on when I had a group of friends around. And, you know, it was it was a mixed group of friends. They didn't really know what they were in for. And I said, look, I've got fantastic memories of this, guys. You'll, you'll, you'll love it. And I put the film on. And, look, it was my immaturity and awkwardness. I, I understand this now. But the stone ground sequence, which I now love with all my heart, uh-huh. but it seemed to last something like three hours. <laughs> and my toes were curling with embarrassment. Oh, no. People were getting up and leaving, and I was sitting there thinking, oh, why didn't I pick another film? Now, everyone stayed to, to the end of the film, and they really got, got into it. But the Stone Ground experience partially traumatized me. And fast forward again, and it was when I started getting into podcasts like like yours, mm-hmm. and I heard a lot of people raving about this film, and I thought, I need to re- reevaluate it again. I need to get back on board. And of course, loved it with all my heart, especially the stone ground sequence. So it just shows you how your your own tastes and I guess your own maturity as well changes through through the course of your life. I think there's a lot to be said there. There there are movies that when I watch, I often say that I learn something new about myself every time I watch this particular film or that particular mm. film. And I think these movies that do become part of us as we grow, as we mature, we start learning new things about the movies or different parts appeal to you differently. And yes. I can see that, especially with the stone ground sequence, the music sequence at the beginning with the party. Mm. I think I might have been a little bored by it the first time i saw it I mean, it was like you know it wasn't the kind of music that i was into and it wasn't sure, what i was expecting sure. and where's peter cushing you know but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know as i've watched the movie over the years that that's part of it i mean i i gotta have that soundtrack i've gotta have that song it has nothing Same. to do with the movie at all but <laughs> i gotta have it and it's kind of indicative of what this group of friends is all about and it's it's character building and it's atmosphere it building. Is. it's part of the story too it's part of the 70s actually Derek, you're absolutely right i hadn't considered that it does actually give you an insight into the different characters in the group a lot more than i had really realized at the time and of course that sequence with uh, johnny alucard as he's leaving the party with the little statuette (laughs) that says everything you need to know about that particular character (laughs) yeah it does well even when we see him 
quote unquote dancing with <laughs> Carolyn Monroe. He's got this kind of aloof, I'm way too cool for all this vibe, and everybody else is getting into it, but he's just that's kind true. of above it all. And again, that's his character, and you see the groundwork for what he is and, and happening there. And yeah, he's he's so cool that he's he's looking bored dancing with Carolyn Monroe in that outfit. <laughs> that's not how i would be reacting if i got a dance a chance to dance with her i'm just saying <laughs> and and of course uh joe the uh, guy in the monk's habit <laughs> um, he's wonderful in that sequence he really is so he makes me laugh every time he's on screen he really does well, and you know, I don't, I don't know about you or, or any of the other listeners, but there was always somebody in my group of friends over the years, no matter what group it was, there was always that one guy mm-hmm. that was always the Joker, always trying yeah. to make fun, always trying to make light, and you know, we all loved him for it. Yes, and maybe sometimes it was me. I don't know, <laughs> you know, but there was always that one guy. So it's it's an instantly relatable group of friends as well. I'm on board with you with, with that with that, Derek. I, I had a horrible feeling that it might have been me and my group of friends as well, <laughs> where, where where people smile and tolerate you. <laughs> <laughs> But um, just just watching the um group, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people like to level criticism. Those people who do level criticism at the film, they often do it that group that they don't really talk like hippies and that they're too old to be hippies. And but my my impression is that maybe they were never really meant to be hippies. They they sort of strike me as probably bored rich kids or you know bored kids who come from a reasonably well off families who are sort of extending their experience. They're um, getting into the hippie movement a little bit, which was just starting to build up then. So I think calling them hippies sort of oversimplifies the situation. I could see that. And it certainly wouldn't be the first time Hammer had had a group of characters who were just trying to expand their, you know, to, to grow their experiences in a Dracula film even. You know, Hammer did have a previous film with uh, the the three that were always looking for new experiences and getting into new things and, and that sort of thing. So it's not the first time Hammer did that. And I could see that with this group, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting. You realize that um, they all have criminal records, even Jessica Van Helsing. And, and, and you find that out in, in conversation. Uh, with Inspector Murray later on in the film, mm-hmm. I suspect there was a, there's a, a slightly harder edge, sort of lying just beneath the surface with with that particular group, and uh, yeah, there's there's interesting dimensions to them if 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 you want to look for them. I think so too. Uh, Jessica does make it very clear. Well, we don't call ourselves a gang; we're just kind of a group. Group, and That's and right. I can't help but wonder if maybe. Somebody told them they had to say that because if they admitted to being a gang, it would put them on the police's radar a little bit more. Very good point. Yes, <laughs> you know, hmm. you 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 aren't speaking from experience there, are you? Derek? Oh no, no, I've never. <laughs> I've always had just groups. That's just <laughs> same, same. Yes. One one other thing about the group, Derek. From from what I remember of the time, the Satanic Panic was yes. very much in the news, mm-hmm. and. Um, I I noted the first time I saw the movie, Satanism was very much wrapped up with Count Dracula and his resurrection. And I thought, this is an interesting angle. 
you know, even in, in the incantations that Johnny Alucard is giving, and he and he lists all the name of, names of of the demons, and the last one that he that he mentions is Count Dracula. I thought, yeah, this is really interesting. It's kind of blurring the line between vampires and demons. But you mentioned Taste the Blood of Dracula. Mm-hmm. That could have been maybe the first time that there was a satanic ritual that brought the Count back. It happens here in AD 1972. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we have the same kind of thing happening in, in the next film. Um, sure. Well, in fact, it's in the title, <laughs> the, the, the Satanic Rites of Dracula. And I mentioned before about the origin story for Count Dracula that Bram Stoker alludes to very, very fleetingly in the original novel. Mm -hmm. And basically that was that when Dracula was human, he was involved in a school of black magic. And apparently, I think it was the the tenth student or the most adept student is taken by the devil as his own and becomes his avatar on on earth. So that that blending of Satanism and the legend of Dracula wasn't just conjured up by Hammer. It did did actually go right back to the original novel. Hmm. The Satanic Panic, you know, here in the States, it really kind of came to a head in the 80s. And I remember it. Um, I was forbidden by my parents to play Dungeons and Dragons and listen to certain Uh music because of all that, you know. Yes. So I was very aware of it, which might have been another reason why when I finally saw this in the 90s, it kind of resonated with me when we got to the church scene and that resurrection scene. Of all the resurrection scenes I've seen in Dracula movies, not just Hammer, but Dracula altogether, that is one of my absolute favorites. Agreed. So good. In fact, you almost want to say, oh, calm down a bit, Christopher Neem. You might (laughs) actually conjure something up if if you're not careful. (laughs) I've read plenty of short stories where somebody's shooting a horror movie like that and they accidentally, you know, bring something about because of what they're acting and performing. So, yeah, it's like, calm down. It's okay. You know, (laughs) I mean, this guy is absolutely giving it his all, isn't he? Oh, man. He's he's just going for it. When I was watching it this time, I just kept thinking, I wonder what the director said to him to get him to, to act that way, because he is just yeah. screaming towards the end and just, man. <laughs> I haven't seen a performance from Caroline Munro that I haven't enjoyed, but I think she really sells it here. Oh, yeah. She, I mean, in, in a completely different way to, 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 to Christopher Neem, but you believe that it's really happening to her. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that actually makes it really affecting to see her friends abandon her. But from what I understand, so at, at parties that can sometimes go sideways, people do tend to scatter rather than try and make a logical decision and help people. I'm saying this is what I heard because I've never been invited to those sorts of parties. But <laughs> it seems a realistic uh, re- reaction that everyone would scatter in every direction rather sure. than try and think, think their way out of it. Well, and that's what makes it more tragic, like you were saying, you know, because she is so into it and so under the spell. And then when, yeah. when things start to go south, <laughs> when, sure. when the, the goblet of blood and ash gets spilled on her and she starts screaming and everybody starts to scatter and she's calling for her friends, yeah. Jessica even hesitates, but ultimately they leave her behind. Exactly. 
it is heartbreaking. Then, of course, when the count appears. Oh, wow. And I think this is a wonderful sequence of him materializing out of the fog. And because of the camera angle that Alan Gibson's used, I mean, Christopher Lee looks about 20 feet tall. <laughs> he, he looks enormous. He was always an imposing guy in everything I've always seen him in. But in this in particular, and I don't know if it's the camera angles, the lighting, some sort of other not quite Hollywood magic. There's something here that makes him feel like a powerhouse. Oh, sure. Once again, uh, to compliment Caroline Monroe's uh, performance, I think she sells the Count's return just as much as Lee and Neen mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. She She's utterly believable in that kind of situation. And Caroline Monroe, who's obviously a very statuesque lady, has said herself that she is tall, but Christopher Lee towered over her, and she found it very easy to perform in in, in that scene. I think she said that she barely needed to act (laughs) at all. Which would kind of make sense given where she was in her career, too, because this was pretty early in her career, her first Hammer film. It was. Mm, uh, Her first of only two Hammer films, which I think a lot of people don't really realize that she only did two films for Hammer. Yeah. Uh, this one and Captain Kronos. <laughs> if this was 1951 down place, you could drop the sting in there. <laughs> it was playing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, you're, you're absolutely right. She's only done two films for Hammer, but my goodness, they're memorable films. They, they oh, yeah. really are, and memorable performances as well. In, in lots of ways, it's, it's sad to see her go so, so soon in the running of this particular film. But at least she does give that really memorable performance. Of the other four ladies, I think they're all fantastic. You um, probably know the story that uh, Marsha Hunt, who plays Gaynor, she confirms in her autobiography that she's the subject of the Rolling Stones song Brown Sugar. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, she, she was apparently going out with Mick Jagger, and that led to her naming a song after her, which or at least dedicating a song to her, which apparently musicians did a lot in that time Hmm. and uh, still do. So, yeah, that's an interesting bit of trivia. How how do you connect Mick Jagger with Hammer? Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) I like all the performances in this. Uh, The four women... uh, you know, the, the other men in the party, there are a couple uh, of the men that we don't really spend a lot of time with mm. or just kind of, you know, there. And, and that's fine. You mentioned earlier Inspector Murray, and yes. I think he's kind of an unrecognized hero of this film. I don't imagine there were very many movies coming out in which somebody said, it's vampires. And the law enforcement said, okay, I know a guy. You know, <laughs> normally you say it's vampires and you're like, well, okay, uh, somebody keep an eye on that guy and you know you are absolutely right Derek he's an open-minded 70s copper which you never came across mm-hmm. but he absolutely sells it he's an intelligent man in a difficult job being asked to accept something which many people would just dismiss offhand but he's willing to listen and of course the fact that Peter Cushing is so compelling you know, oh, yeah. he, could, he could read the phone book and you would be spellbound. So <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think perhaps um, the fact that Van Helsing is so compelling and that Murray is so open-minded means that they form a really, really good team. I'd watch a whole series of movies of those two together. Oh, I absolutely would. I think Hannah missed a trick by not doing a TV series. 
<laughs> 70s with Cushing and uh, Inspector Murray. I would watch the hell out of that. I really would. Oh, it'd be amazing. It'd be amazing. <laughs> there'd, there'd be all kinds of different supernatural threats. It would oh, be, man. be great. Oh, somebody get some fan fiction or fan films going oh, of please. that. That's what I want to see. Uh, Inspector Murray, played by Michael Coles, it has yes, the unique distinction as well as being a, one of, I think, the only other actor to play the same character in more than one Dracula film other than Lee and Cushing. You you are absolutely right. I mean, we, we've had two clothes, but they were played by different actors. And Jessica Van Helsing is recast in the next exactly. film. But Michael Coles is the same guy, and he comes back and still fighting the good fight i was sort of um i was sort of wondering derek if one of the questions you you were going to ask me was um who would i want to see appear in a hammer movie who never did oh okay. of course the answer that you most often get is vincent price and i can't Mm -hmm. argue with that at all i i would give my left arm to have seen that (laughs) you 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 came up with barbara Steele, which is another excellent suggestion but mine was going to be an actor called david warner who oh yeah, love and he did Amicus and all kinds yeah. of fantasy and horror movies. Now we didn't get David Warner, but Michael Coles looks so much like David Warner as he did at that particular time that I'm thinking, okay, well he's the next best thing. So I'll, <laughs> I'll just shut up and be happy that I got. That I got Michael Coles. <laughs> he he does. He's got uh, especially in the eyes yeah. and the way he kind of moves his chin. Uh, exactly, you, you can definitely see that there. Interesting. And of course, this wasn't the first time he did a film with Peter Cushing because he was in uh, the Doctor Who and the Daleks film with Cushing playing Doctor Who. Derek, I shouldn't be surprised at all, but you really have done your homework, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I actually love the Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies. I know Whovians are maybe not a big fan of them, but I love them. Well, the showrunner of Doctor Who recently novelized uh, the 50th anniversary special, and he put a lot of extra things in it. And one of the things that he put in it was that Peter Cushing and the Doctor were actually good friends. Like the 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 the, um, the um doctor loved the fact that Peter Cushing played him in these two movies and would watch these movies whenever he got the chance because he just loved them, and they say that apparently they got on so well that he would have Peter Cushing on board the TARDIS and take him on trips. <laughs> and they said that they realized this was happening when Peter Cushing started turning up in movies that were made after he died because of time travel. So I thought that was a really ingenious way of uh, merging those and Rogue One together into one lovely narrative. I love that so much. That's amazing. (laughs) Wow. That's great. That's great. It really is. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I like Michael Coles in these films a lot. And uh, I know I'm not the only person who, well, I mean, you just said it yourself to see a movie or a story with more Inspector Murray and Lorimer Van Helsing going around fighting monsters. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board. Somebody invent that time machine so we can go back in time and make that happen. Oh, please. It's, it's, it's sort of t- tied in with that wider thing, isn't it, Derek? That people seem to be a bit down on 70s Hammer. Yeah. I think they were doing a lot of really, really good inventive stuff. And I think if anything went wrong, it was maybe that they were ahead of their time 
and that it wasn't quite connecting with uh, with the audiences of that time. One thing that I'm very aware of is what I call the action horror genre. Okay. And Hammer were doing that decades ago. I, I would love to have seen more contemporary stories with the Van Helsing family and Inspector Murray. I would love to have seen uh, a continuation of Lawrence Van Helsing yeah. touring the world with his son, going to different countries and encountering the different supernatural threats that that particular culture did had, just as they had in China. Mm-hmm. There was so much scope there. And, of course, I needn't mention that Kronos really, really did need to be a series. And maybe in an alternative reality it happened. But, uh, God, I would love to have seen that. Oh, it would have been great. It would have been great. Mm, For sure. As we're talking about Cushing, once again, what really strikes me in this film is that although he's painfully thin, uh, you, you can see that in, in, in the scene where he has his shirt sleeve ripped right. you know, when he's been stabbed. My God, does he throw himself into the action. I mean, he, he even does a pull-up <laughs> over, over, over that fence at the Cavern Club. I'm thinking, my God, good for you, man. <laughs> um, but his, his fight scene, yet another fight scene with Christopher Neen, you almost have to wonder if the director at any stage said, um, Peter, do you maybe want to take it easy? We could put a stuntman in here. You don't have to do this. But his fight scene with Christopher Neem, you've got the knife. Van Helsing goes at him with a pull cue. That's great barroom fighting style. Right. But um, Christopher Neem has said uh, in, in interviews since that he got a bit of a bruising. He got a bit of a bruising in his fight with uh, Peter Cushing, who was over twice his age. So basically, it's good to know that Cushing could open up a can of what ass <laughs> where it was needed. <laughs> he did throw himself into it. Uh, he was, he was. I mean, we saw him do that in Horror of Dracula and Brides of Dracula, and to see him do it again around twenty years later, man. I mean, he he was a smaller guy in stature compared yes. to like Christopher yes. Lee or some of the others, but I would not want to be on his bad side. No, he's um, wily. Yeah, he he, <laughs> he extremely wily. Uh, he he established, I guess, he established Van Helsing as as an action hero, and despite everything that had happened to him, his personal tragedies and his uh, personal health, he was absolutely determined to to carry that um, thread through, mm-hmm. and it's um, amazing to unwatch. There's something about seeing horror movies made in this era where you have actual grown-ups, actual adults carrying the story and carrying the action scenes, which sort of draws me, you know, as opposed to more modern movies where you have teenagers or people in their young 20s. I'm not putting those movies down, but, you know, those actors will never have the gravitas that people like Cushing do. The demographic target seems to have changed i think you're right with a lot of modern horror it's usually targeted at the younger audience and maybe it's because it's the younger audience they're trying to get into the theaters now and they have the more disposable income i don't know what yeah. changed to that or caused that to happen but, yeah. but to have some adults some grown-ups in the lead that does speak to me as well i mean especially now that i'm a grown-up 
Yeah, me too. You know, but supposedly anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, physically, <laughs> yes, physically, <laughs> emotionally, mentally, I don't know, socially, I don't know, yeah. but you know. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that, that that's another good thing about uh, this movie is that it's a true intergenerational film. You mm-hmm. you don't just get different generations of the Van Helsing family, but you have a, a younger group, and then you have the grown-ups. You have Inspector Murray. And his sergeant, who's also a wonderful character, he he doesn't say much, but he's a really solid, dependable presence in every scene that he's in. I I, I really like him. So you've got Murray, you've got the sergeant, you've got Van Helsing. So yeah, you've got a, a, a mixed age group, and I really enjoy that. I really can't think of anything about the movie that I flat out dislike. I mean, this is just a fun movie. It's something that you can put on and just kind of enjoy on a surface level. You know, it's a vampire movie. It's Dracula. It's Hammer. It's great. Or if you want to really kind of deep dive into it, you can certainly do that too. It offers you that. Or if you just want to listen to the soundtrack. You got that too. And I love the music. And it wouldn't be an episode of Monster Kid Radio if I didn't mention how much I love the film score uh, of whatever movie we're talking about. And this score is solid. I am right there with you. And and in fact, we were talking before about different horror or monster movies that we can watch with our partners. My own wife, if anything puts her off Hammer, it's that she struggles a little bit with some of the more bombastic scores. Okay. I mean, that's just the way that the movies were made, and it's part of the reason that people like you and I love them. Mm -hmm. But she just seems to find it a bit overwhelming. But she's actually watched this one with me several times, and I think part of the reason could be that it just has a completely different score. It's a completely different style. It's really good. With the beginning of the movie, the prologue that's set in in the past – it could mm. go either way. I mean, it kind of fits, but then once yeah. you get to the opening credits and things kind of kick in, I've heard some people call it like a black exploitation like score. I don't know if I'd go that oh, far, yes. but it definitely has a little bit of funk to it, and I love it. Just love the kind of um, bongo beat yes. that you have just as you lead in, into the main score as the title of the movie comes up. I just love it with all my heart yeah. and I'm, I'm just hoping that being so overwhelmingly positive about this film isn't going to make for dull listening i've i've mentioned that i've struggled with it when i've been younger but but now i would not be able to say a bad thing about it i i guess if there's anything that makes me sad it's just the kicking that this poor film has had to put up with over the decades past and, you know, even from Christopher Lee himself, there's those famous pub publicity shots, and I'm sure that you've seen them, where you have Christopher Lee surrounded by these four magnificently beautiful women, Carolyn Monroe, Janet Key, Marsha Hunt, Stephanie Beecham, and he's sitting there looking so miserable yeah. and irritated and bored. And, uh, and I, I just think, my goodness, Christopher, I love you, but if this doesn't make you happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, Over the years, Lee didn't have a lot of kind things to say for a lot of the later Hammer Dracula Mm. films. And, you know, right or wrong, you know, I know Lee didn't really enjoy making some of them and kind of got talked into them by the powers that be. Uh, But he still 
had a chance to say some pretty neat thing. I mean, he works in a line of dialogue in this film, and I don't know if this was in the script or something that Lee brought to the table, because I know Lee was familiar with Bram Stoker's text. Mm. There's a line here that is very reminiscent of Bram Stoker's Dracula. You would play your brains against mine, right. against me, who has commanded nations. I mean, that's kind of exactly. lifted from Bram Stoker's Dracula. So you do have some classy dialogue. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And exactly like you, I've often wondered, did, did Lee just throw that in himself or was it actually written? But it's absolutely in the right place because, of course, it kicks off their final epic battle which is just as energetic yes. and gritty. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, that's Cushing being thrown around. It's not a stunt double. He really is giving his all there, and he's really selling the strength of the Count. I think so, someone actually said that uh, maybe Cushing should have been in professional wrestling <laughs> because he really sells a blow or a throw. You know, he really throws himself in, 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 into it. And of course, it, it leads to that surprisingly gruesome final end. I mean, not only does he fall into the state pit, having been burned by holy water, but then, <laughs> then Van Helsing <laughs> goes at him with a shuffle. He really doesn't like Dracula. <laughs> He really doesn't. <laughs> I mean, okay, Van Helsing might have gotten tossed around a bit, but I think he he conclusively wins this round. <laughs> Definitely. You know, as much as I love Satanic Rites of Dracula, and I do, I do think this movie's a bit stronger because of the opening and especially because of the climax. Yes, yeah. it is. It is. And I've heard similar things said about the climax of um Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, that the final fight should have been an awful lot more. But this film, by comparison, is just an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> it really is. There's one final thing that I have to say, and I, and I hope that you'll forgive me, but it's something. Through the course of the film, Stephanie Beecham's incredible cantilevered cleavage <laughs> has become more and more difficult to 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 ignore I, I remember watching this film with a female friend mm -hmm. and then the very last scene where Cushing takes his jacket off and says here Jessica put put this around you and he puts the jacket around her shoulders my my female friends finally shouted yes <laughs> put them away for heaven's sake <laughs> <laughs> So I guess you could say that there's, so, there's something for everybody. <laughs> That's a great way to wrap up our conversation on the film. I, I love the movie, and I know it's been released on Blu-ray in Germany before, yes. but it is coming out here in the States from, uh, let's see, who's putting it out? Warner Brothers? Yeah, Warner Archives is putting it out on Blu-ray. It'll be coming out on October 16th, which may be right around when this episode comes out. I want to make sure it's out around that time. It's on my wish list. I can't wait to get my hands on it and watch it with a nice transfer, at least nicer than anything we've ever seen. I'm absolutely right there with you. There's a great print on iTunes, but um, to be able to see it on Blu-ray is just going to be amazing. It really is. I don't think it's going to have any special features or anything like that, but you know what? Give me Lee and Cushing and high def and I'm good. <laughs> And, and, and in terms of special features, hey, Derek, people can always just listen to this episode. Hey, there you go. There you go. go. All right. <laughs> so that'll be coming out. The other thing that's coming out this month is your book. Mm. 
the Info Gothic book, which you've been talking to me about by email for a while now, and I am ecstatic that it is finally going to be available for people. Right and as of this recording, people can pre-order it. It's going to be released on Halloween, which is perfect from Talos Publishing over in the UK. How long have you been working on this? It's been probably a month shy of two two years. In fact, uh, just by sheer coincidence, the date that we're recording this is two years to the very day. Oh wow! That I got the response back from from the publisher. So. That gives you an idea of the time frame. Wow. But um, one of the reasons that I've picked on you so so much over the last couple of years, keeping you updated about this. I don't this, mind that, at all. I don't mind oh, at all. Thank you. <laughs> is, that, is that you've been a, a major influence. I, I was fairly late in discovering podcasts. It was probably around 2013 that I really started becoming aware of the art form. And uh, I quickly discovered 1951 Down Place, and that led me to MKR. This also corresponded with so many Hammer movies becoming available on Blu-ray, and I began to blog about those. And so those things all sort of combined to really sort of fire up my enthusiasm about Hammer films. Actually, I don't know if I told you this or, or not. I was listening to an episode of 1951 Down Place. I was actually out for a run. And it was the Gorgon episode that, that you... Oh, okay. Used. And that actually ends with you and Scott and Casey talking about the Hammer Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, someone had sent in some fan art of... Yeah. What was it? Van Helsing, Kronos, Quatermass, and Father Sandor. I think it was Father Sandor, yeah. That's right. Anyway, you, you guys started talking about this, and you layered in the, the A-team theme because i think <laughs> scott or casey had mentioned that it reminded him of of the 18 you guys are obviously having having a hugely enjoyable time talking about it and it was making me laugh so much i actually had to stop and lean <laughs> against a wall and get my breathing back <laughs> but it, it kind of inspired me and about a week later i sent into the facebook site a photoshopped image which was based on the Avengers Age of Ultron poster. But it also had those four characters in the same poses that Iron Man and Thor and the rest of them were, were, were in. <laughs> so the reason that I've taken you on that rather long tangent is just to show that you guys were inspiring me creatively as well as, as putting out really enjoyable podcasts. And it was in 2016 uh, that you interviewed an artist called Jason Brower. He's a lovely and talented guy, and he obviously loved his hammer. And you guys mentioned AD 1972 and how that opening sequence reminded you of a Bond movie. Oh, okay, yeah. How, how it's like you've seen the, the end of the, of the previous adventure before the title sequence starts. Sure. Once again, I got really inspired. So I went home and I started doing a reference, started doing research for a painting that was going to depict a scene from that previous adventure. So I was researching all of these images of Cushing and Lee. And as I got deeper and deeper into that, I think it's then that the idea kind of flicked on in my head that maybe I could do a book. Because also at that time, and this is the final ingredient, infographics books were actually very, very popular. Um, I'm not sure if, if, if you're aware, Derek, but there's been one for Star Wars. There's been one for superheroes. There's been a Star Trek one, a Doctor Who one. 
all of the, the, the big genre franchises seem to have an infographics book. So I thought, well, I wonder if Hammer does. And I did some research and found that they didn't. And I mentioned the idea to my wife, Rose. I said, um, look, I think I've got an idea for, for a book. And she said, we'll do it. That's basically how it started. <laughs> well, I love how it looks. Uh, this infographic style of, and it's, let me back up here. Hmm. Listeners, this isn't just a book of, here's a picture from Curse of the Werewolf. Here's a picture from the horror of Frankenstein. This is, in many cases, an attempt to kind of put some of these films in a cohesive timeline to show either in-story continuity or how the films relate to each other outside of continuity. And did you do all the artwork in it? It's um, all me. The, the element that I didn't mention is that in my then day job, I worked for a media organization. And one of the things which I did often and I became passionate about was the infographic style, actually taking a concept or, or a story and presenting it in, in visual form. I'm an illustrator as well as a graphic designer. So the infographic form sort of combines these two things. So yes, I was very f familiar with infographics, and I was very passionate about them as well. In, in that particular job, I, I, I would often produce graphics in my own time, just because I was so enthusiastic about them. It's 100% me, for better or for worse. It's all <laughs> me, yeah. How many pages is it? 96 pages. Wow. When I pitched the um, concept, I, I had a much smaller thing in mind, and they came back and they sort of suggested a number of pages, which I just knew that I would never be able to do. So I said, well, how about we do this number? Sold them on, on that. And one of the first things that I did, Derek, was a mock-up of the contents page. They wanted to see page samples before they sent me a contract, and that's Absolutely understandable. I, I had to be able to show that I could do this. I did the contents page, I think, in a single afternoon. And the really strange thing is that that contents page, which I did two years ago, pretty much survived almost unchanged through the whole process. Oh, wow. So, you know, it doesn't happen often in my life, if ever, but I had a very clear idea of how I felt this could work. And fortunately, the publishers were happy to back me with that. So that was the route that I followed right to the end of the book. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I that, was pretty amazed so cool. <laughs> <laughs> This book covers Hammer Horror. So you've got Dracula, Frankenstein, and uh, The Curse of the Werewolf on the cover. Yes. But you've also got Quatermass. You've also mm -hmm. got the Mummy films, which I adore. You've got the dinosaur movies they did. I mean, it's yes. not just the big guns here you've got everything in here from dracula onward and i appreciate its thoroughness because i feel like when people think hammer they think dracula frankenstein and maybe a mummy movie yeah. but there is so much more out there you've got the gorgon you've got plague of the zombies you've got it all in here and i appreciate that that was one thing that i was extremely keen on one of the graphics in the book explains that only a third of hammer's output was horror movies I wanted to concentrate on the horror, but I also wanted to spread the net as widely as possible. So I was absolutely going to cover their science fiction movies. Um, I was very keen to bring that on, on board. I really wanted to do the prehistoric films as well. So I thought, well, that actually gives me a huge base to um, work from. You go from prehistory right to Moon Zero Two. 
<laughs> which was their only space opera. <laughs> and another film that I absolutely love. It's such a camp classic really? and deserves to be seen by everyone. Oh, yes. I think we might have just found and, the next movie you and I are going to talk about on the show sometime. Oh, great, great. Because if you if you want to talk about amazing theme songs... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can just see them saying, we need a theme song. Why don't we just get someone to sing the film title? (laughs) (laughs) It was was actually Moon Zero Two was one of the pages that I spent the most time on, believe it or not, because I really wanted to do a, a detailed and accurate schematic of their moon buggy. And that basically involved just finding every tiny bit of reference that I could, watching the movie, freeze-framing it, studying it in in surgical detail. I've made this uh, blueprint as accurate as I possibly could and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) So I know it's a Hammer-specific book. However, the material in the book isn't just about Hammer. And what I mean by that is, like, for example, I'm looking at the Phantom of the Opera page, Mm. and you've got content about Hammer's Phantom, but there's also illustrations of all the different masks used, from Lon Chaney to Charles Dance, which I think Mm. people forget that Charles Dance played the Phantom on television. Sure. You know, a TV movie here. Uh, You even referenced Julian Sands playing the Phantom. You've got Robert Englund's Phantom mask in here. So you don't just stick to hammer it's not just a hammer echo chamber you do relay it to what other things were happening in the genre or the franchises or the properties we see i i think that's one one of the attractions hopefully of a book like this derek is that you get to contrast and compare we were saying uh before we started recording that i've never really understood why people just restrict their fandom to the output of one particular studio or um one particular creature or one particular director there's a there's a massive um, world of horror and science fiction and fantasy out there and it just seemed a very natural thing to me to then take the hammer examples and as i say compare and contrast them with what people have done before and what they've done since so I've mentioned the graphic design and the illustration behind this but what i didn't really emphasize was the research and that was colossal that was probably the hugest part of this project fortunately i had managed to build up a relationship with some real authors uh including marcus hearn oh wow who of course is um hammer's official historian and uh, marcus was absolutely amazing he would come back to me so quickly with my questions and many of my questions were pretty obscure i can i can tell you but marcus was amazing in giving me that detail in the in doing the research i was absolutely determined that i wasn't just going to accept what other people had already written regardless of how well they had written it um i I knew that as much as possible i needed to go back to the source material see for myself for my own conclusions see if i could burrow into the dark corners and extract things that other people hadn't previously the research was a huge uh, element of this book but also probably the most enjoyable one Definitely. Any research for any project that ultimately involves watching a bunch of Hammer films? <laughs> I mean, I, I will take that project on. Uh, 
you know. So. Yes. <laughs> but that's great that, you know, Marcus Hearn is involved, so tangentially hammers on board. You've got a Carolyn Monroe forward, which is amazing. I was so thrilled when the publishers mentioned that they knew her and that they would talk to Caroline about doing this. Now, it's no exaggeration to say that as much as I love the other ladies, Caroline has always been my favorite. And I think possibly because of the other genre stuff that she did. I love my Bond. I love my Harry Housen. I love my Dr. Fibes. She's done it all. So when they mentioned that they knew Caroline and they talked to her about doing the, the introduction, my, my, my little fan heart burst. It was, <laughs> it was way more than I could ever have dreamed. Well, obviously, she's an, an extremely busy lady. But when the introduction came through, it just exceeded my expectations. She even gives an anecdote about Dracula AD 1972, which I haven't heard anywhere else. So that was a real bonus. That's fantastic. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I know it'll probably change a little bit between now and the time somebody goes online just because of how the, the rates change. But as of right now, it runs about $26 US dollars. It's 19.99 pounds. And yes, $25, $26 for nearly 100 full color pages about Hammer. That's a bargain. One of the reasons that I believe we've been able to keep costs down is that, and I'll just say this um, off the top of my head, if someone is looking for photographs from movies, and I have to say this, you'll be able to find in hundreds of other volumes, this isn't your book. By its very nature, it's an infographic book, and it's full of original artwork. By not having to use photographs, which was never part of the original concept, we've been able to keep costs down. And I'm really happy about that, because obviously I'd like as many people to be able to see this book as, as possible. Well, I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes, of course, for people to follow to see where they can pre-order the book. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure this episode comes out before Halloween so they can get those pre-orders in since the book comes out on Halloween. Obviously, because it's shipping from uh, shipping from the UK. It's a UK publisher, so it'll be shipping That's from right. the UK. Yeah. Anybody here in the States ordering it, you're not going to get it until after Halloween. But let's put the orders in anyway because – I mean, you're going to want this book. I can think of like five or six people that I want to buy this for as Christmas gifts. <laughs> Thank you so much, Derek. I had an absolute blast. If I sound as if I'm, I'm emphasizing how much work went into it, I'll, I'll also say that it was a delight and a pleasure and a privilege to be able to do something like that. If you have a project that you're passionate about, it, it doesn't feel like work. And it, it never, ever did. One of the pages that you've mentioned, which I had the most fun with, was trying to put the Dracula films into some sort of consistent timeline. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun with it, but it was also incredibly frustrating because there are so many instances where something almost fits together, <laughs> but just doesn't quite. And I guess, you know, when, when they were making these movies decades ago, they weren't imagining that some geek who barely sets foot out, outside of his office for two years is going to be <laughs> worrying about how the films fit together. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun trying to make them fit, for sure. <laughs> yeah, they really didn't seem to care too much. I mean, the first two films, both of the big franchises, they're direct sequels. So they're good. Yeah. you know. But after that, it's just like, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. But, I mean, that's another thing in AD 72's favor. It yeah. does have a direct sequel. It dovetails beautifully into in, in, into the next film. 
It does. It certainly does. Yeah. So, you know, I'd love to have you back on to talk about Satanic Rites of Dracula and definitely Moon Zero Two because that would be amazing. That movie makes me smile from start to finish. It's so much fun. <laughs> I've had a blast recording with you, Al. This has been amazing and so glad that we were able to make it happen and, and beat the time zones and get you on here. This has been a real treat for me. It's been an honor and a thrill. We've been talking about this for, for such a long time and, and to finally have reached the stage where we were able to undo it. it it's a definite highlight. And uh, thank you so much for all the kind things that you've said about the um, book. I'm really glad that you unlike um, it. I'm a Hammer fan and I know it's exactly the kind of thing that I would want to lose myself in for, for a few hours. So hopefully other people do too. I think that's a really good way to put it. You're going to lose yourself for a few hours in this book. Mm. For sure. I know I did. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we didn't lose anybody in this episode, though, because I've had a f fun time yeah. talking about the movie as well. Again, thanks for doing this, and we'll have you on the show down the line. Thanks, Derek. You just give the call, and I'll come running anytime. <laughs> I'll send up the uh, hammer signal. And then <laughs> oh, there's a good idea. <laughs> Al, man, I had so much fun chatting with you the other day about the movie and the book. I cannot wait to get my hands on it. Oh, oh boy. Okay. So first of all, if you're interested in seeing the kind of artwork that Al can do, check out his website, Shoreline Creative. It's shorelinecreative.co.nz. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes or just go straight to Talos Publishing's website and buy the book or at least pre-order the book. That's talos.co.uk and T-E-L-O-S.co.uk. Again, link in the show notes. That'll take you directly to where you can pre-order the book. I've already pre-ordered mine, but I'll talk about that later in this episode. Alistair was awesome to chat with, and I can't wait to have him on the show down the line. Probably to talk about the Satanic Rites of Dracula because, man, I love that movie. Thanks again, Al. They're dead. Religious rites become obscene orgies. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing together in Count Dracula and his vampire bride. The king of the undead marries the queen of the zombies.
as the two masters of Venice grapple for the souls of the living and the dead. Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans. Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horrors Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. first moon western. The year is 2028 AD and it's really like nothing on Earth. Here are the billion dollar asteroids of the future. The bizarre machines. The fantastic weapons. The astounding moon treasure that pits man against man. The moon maidens that are part of the prize. United Nations Space Charter, Section 99B. No sex is permitted in space. Moon, zero, two. to get free. The first moon western, where the chase is through space, and the death dealt by laser. Are you walking home, or would you like a lift? But the shootout is still an old-fashioned shootout.
normally when I take the recorder to Weird Wednesday at the Joy Cinema, I record the introduction that I do before the film. This time, however, I'm going to skip that. Now, that will appear in a future YouTube video. However, right now, I just want to play the trailer from Wereskido and then go into the conversation that I had with a couple of people afterwards. Oh, and I'm not going to play the Count's introduction, but I think it's safe to say there are going to be a few spoilers happening here. Not just with Wereskido, but the Mimiverse overall. Not, not too bad, but you've been warned. What brings you to our little corner of nowhere? Trying to find an old friend. Yeah? What's his name? Shram. What did this Shram do to you? Real Wrath of God type stuff. Tell me where Shram is or I swear to you, you will regret it. The only person who will be regretting his actions is you. out of practice with this whole weird Wednesday thing. You're not going to be calling in anymore because uh, we do it live now. Well, recorded live, kind of, sort of. Jeff Polier, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. That was a lot of fun. Was this the first time you've seen Wereskito Nazi Hunter? Yes, yes, it was. What is your experience with the Mimiverse, the Mimiverse films? So uh, the first one I saw was The Giant Spider, which I did see here at The Joy. And I've seen The Monster of Phantom Lake and The Monster of Phantom Lake, the musical. So the ending's happening. And I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm looking over, and it's like, are you going to get the, the cameo, the, the Easter egg? For I don't want to spoil it for any listeners, but there's something. And I see um, somebody lean over and whisper something to you, and you go, oh. Oh! Yeah. Well, I didn't understand what he said, and in the interest of not spoiling things, I'm not going to say it myself. So I didn't understand what he said, but my companion, uh, J.J., uh, did uh-huh. and she has also seen the monster of phantom lake and the monster of phantom lake the musical and therefore uh, caught the reference even though i missed it <laughs> i had no idea that was going to happen when i first saw the film uh, i've never been to a premiere or a screen or anything like that i've always had the dvd sent to me after the fact and uh, i had no idea and, and for people who don't know what we're talking about i'm not going to ruin it but all the Mimiverse films all take place in one universe, one shared continuity. Very uh, Kevin Smith of him, very uh, you know Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. of him, except he's been doing it for 13 years. And uh, this one definitely ties in, but ties into one you might not expect, and I thought that was kind of neat. It's a prequel. Uh, the the yeah. Mimiverse, they are all tied together, but they don't occur in the order that they come out. That's true. I'd like to see one cohesive timeline published at some point. And I know that Chris himself has got a timeline, and another listener like Steve Turek has put together a timeline. Uh, the movie itself uh, is is one of my favorites. Uh, I've said earlier a couple of times uh, for the YouTube channel that this is like my probably my top three. Now I know you've not seen that many, but it's definitely in my top three. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get more Mimiverse films in you, man. <laughs> so much fun. Um, what do you think of the monster design? I uh, really enjoyed the Wereskito, but I especially enjoyed Liesel's makeup. Very cool stuff. Um, so Mitch Gonzalez, of course, is the man who makes the monsters for the Mimiverse. He's not been with them from the very beginning, but as soon as he joins the crew, you can definitely see from that film onward a marked improvement. Plus, he's an actor in this. Mm-hmm. He played, and it's, it's amazing, he played one of the Germans and just, man, just vicious. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, 
you know, we're, we're predisposed to hate Nazis anyway, but these guys are really nasty. <laughs> when uh, Chris was talking about this movie, he oftentimes told people, oh, it's dark. It's dark. It's going to be dark. This is probably the darkest of the Memiverse films. There are some seriously dark moments. Knowing what you know about the Memiverse, having seen the giant spider and Monster Phantom Lake, do you have a problem? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it was appropriately dark. Uh, he was very driven. He'd been tortured. I mean, he'd just been straight up tortured for three years. Uh, you know, I can totally understand him being so driven to the exclusion of any possibility of any other kind of relationship, which Liesl clearly wanted. And speaking of Liesl, I, I just, I adored her. I love that she's a strong woman. She is her own woman as, you know, well-established in the film. And she really appreciated that John gave her that agency also. You know, he wasn't ready to step in and take Eric's place in claiming her. He doesn't want to claim her. Uh, he wants to be her friend. That's one of the things that I like about uh, Chris Mims' movies as well, is that even though the movies are set in this nebulous 1950s kind of setting, a lot of the female, a lot of the women characters are, are strong women. Uh, Attack of the Moon Zombies has some amazing female characters in it, which probably ought to see about getting shown here at some point. Dominique is the reason why we showed Resquito. Uh, she, she actually recommended it, and she's here. Why'd you pick this one? This is my favorite of Mims movies. I haven't seen them all, but this one is my favorite of the ones I've seen. It's dark, but it's not like soul crushing. He still manages to have a lot of lighter moments, and I think he handles the material very deftly. So it can still be enjoyable, but still deal with like heavy stuff. What are some of the other Mim movies you've seen? Um, I've seen the, the, Mo the Monster of Phantom Lake, although I haven't seen the musical one. And then the Late Night Double Feature. Mm. And... Maybe some others, but I'm liking on them. So, did you get the connection then between this one and a previous Mimiverse film? No. I'll tell you off, Mike, because I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it. But there, there's a very strong connection. What did you think of the monster design? I loved it. Um, okay, I should say I liked it on the on the Wereskito. Um I thought it was really well done. The other one that popped up at the end. I'm trying, kind of trying to avoid spoilers. Although I probably <laughs> I just said, oh, "Okay, yeah, the Black Widow makeup, not so much." Oh, because while you were out of the room, I said how much I liked the Black Widow makeup. So I like the idea of the Black Widow character makeup, but I can see what you're saying. The, the, some of the the edges between the makeup and the face not as smooth, I suppose, is what. Yeah. Is that I'll, kind of what it is? It's also that, and I feel like it's makeup I've seen before. Like the actual wear squeedo, I keep saying squeedo. I can't help it. <laughs> the actual wear squeedo, it's like I feel like that's something I've never seen before. But I don't know. You know what? It reminded me of Wasp Woman. Oh, okay. It wasn't. It wasn't like exactly the same, but it it had that kind of unfinished feel to it. I guess I don't know. It's. I could see that, and Wasp Woman would be another one that I'd probably recommend as a maybe an inspiration or, or a double feature to see this was and it's kind of a strong female character so uh kind of interesting uh parallel there. and yeah i think you're right i think the wearskito is probably near the very top of my list of monsters from the memiverse that i'd love to see as an action figure and i know i say that to mitch every time i see him in person so <laughs> i'm saying it here on the podcast now um we got to get more memiverse movies here man i, I just mm, oh, yeah. it's a, i mean it's will allow it absolutely 
Oh, yeah, he'll, he, he'll do it. He, yeah. He's like, show my movies, show my movies. Um, how would, I'm starting with Dominique, how would you describe the Mimiverse to people? If you were trying to get somebody to watch one of these movies, how would you pitch it? Okay. I know not a lot of people like this, but I would actually start with Larry Blumeyer and the lost skeleton of Cadabra. Because it's not quite the same thing, um, but if, if you like that type of movie but want to go a little more serious and earnest, that is how. Because they, they seem to kind of function in the same headspace, only Mim takes it more seriously. If that makes sense. No, I, I totally get it. What about you, Jeff? Well, I would say they are modern, loving homages to the monster movies of the 1950s. The Larry Blameyer, 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 uh, the, the Lost Skeleton Cadaver, that, that's a very apt comparison. And I know that Chris has kind of jokingly over the years kind of, oh, we've got this feud, you know, he does this. And, and there, there's really no bad blood or anything. But back when the epic rap battles of history was a YouTube thing, I always wanted to see Larry and Chris go at it together because that would have been amazing. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that would have been awesome. Um, I think you're right, though. It is a little bit more earnest. It's it's not a parody or spoof or, or anything like that. Because, you know, he does try to take it a little bit more seriously, especially further on as you go. Monster Phantom Lake does have some moments, and, and the follow-up definitely does. Um, but, yeah, I feel like he kind of hit his groove with Giant Spider, at least at least by then, he was, if not further back. Yeah, I don't know what else to say here. Uh, any, any closing thoughts before I hit off? Well, I do. I wanted to talk about the villain of the piece, Shram. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's great. So he reminded me a lot of Brian Cox, uh, who's a modern actor. And specifically, he reminded me of his character Stryker from the X-Men movies. Dominique is practically jumping over here. Um, because he is... I mean, it wasn't just visually. I mean, he's got... He's got a look that's very similar to Brian Cox, but also the experimenting to make a super soldier. You know, in this, he made John into the super soldier Weresquito. Brian Cox's striker makes Logan into the Wolverine. There was a very similar feel there to me through most of the scenes with Shrom. And then towards the end, when he's trying to convert John to his side... Man, it was just straight up the Emperor from Return of the Jedi. Some of the, some of the dialogue. Come I, join me. Together no. we will rule the world. No, I'll never join you. But there's yeah, also but there's also so a lot of close. There's also a lot of Ed Wood dialogue in there though. Yep. Home. I have no home. You yeah. know, so there's a lot out there too. Uh, it's funny that you bring up more it's appropriate because for a while people were telling Mim he's gotta make a superhero movie. That kind of went into this. There there is that kind of superhero yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. He, he has powers. He has an ability. He sees it as a curse. That's very Marvel to, to have powers and see them as a curse. This was also very Shakespearean. I'm not going to say exactly how, but I'm not talking Shakespeare comedy. I'm talking Shakespeare tragedy. And if you know Shakespeare tragedies, you have an idea of what happens at the end. <laughs> any, any other thoughts from Dominique before I hit stop here? Well, okay. Also, going back to the Brian Cox thing, because part of it is... The guy in this movie, he had that swagger, and he had yep. that smarm. Yep. And he's like, "Yeah, I made you," yep. <laughs> and he's just like lording it. It was just, yeah, it was, it was brilliant. So that was a uh, James Norgard playing that role, and he's a mem regular. He's been a mem regular for uh, going back to Attack of the Moon Zombies at least, and 
he even worked in his, his catchphrase. He's got a catchphrase. In every movie that he does now, he always has a line, Dear God, no. He always says that. So he worked it into this as Dear God, nine. So I, I did appreciate that. No, he's, he's vicious. He's probably the best villain Mim has come up with. And just, mm, I love this film. I'm so glad that you were pushing for it. Because I was pushing for like House of Ghosts or something. But that's where my head was going. But you're like, where's Keto Do? It's like, yeah, I think, I think people like it. We should also mention the film is not purely black and white. Whenever there's blood, it's red on the screen. Yeah. A little bit, little Schindler's List there. Well, okay. Wow. A little The Tangler. That's where I was going, but okay. okay. So the giant, the giant, the giant spider is the first time he used color in the opening credits. This is the first time color actually appeared in the movie itself. So, yeah, good call, good call. I, I somewhere between Schindler's List and Tangler is where. Wow. Gigi's over there laughing silently. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end on that. I don't know how to. Yeah, that's it. The end. <laughs> Count Yorga Vampire is a horror-haunted tale that will take you beyond the boundaries of shock, past the threshold of fear, into a world of the almost human. Vampires have always fascinated me. They should. Their intelligence is far superior to humans. Is it true that vampires must be in the resting places before the sun rises? That if the rays of the sun hit them, they will disintegrate? <laughs> in Count Yorga Vampire, she creatures of unspeakable cravings become the mistresses of the Deathmaster, Count Yorga. No, this film is not of centuries past. It is a film of today. It could happen to you. Perhaps it is already happening to someone you know. Today's young people find it fascinating to dabble in the supernatural, and now they and their ladies pay the penalty in Count Yorga Vampire. See Count Yorga Vampire, rated GP. Parental guidance suggested. How do you do? We're about to unfold the story of Frankenstein. This is Tom Lang. And this is Bill Evenson. And we're the hosts of a new podcast called Frankenstein Minute. That's right. We've taken the classic Universal Studios Frankenstein films and broken them down minute by minute. And each episode, we're going to dissect one minute of Frankenstein. We'll talk about Colin Clive, who played Henry Frankenstein. Dwight Fry, his hunchbacked assistant. Mae Clark, Henry's fiancée. And of course, don't forget that monster, played by the enigmatic question mark. We'll also talk about the director, James Whale, and the fascinating flourishes he brought to the picture. And Mrs. Percy B. Shelley, Mary, of course, the author of the original novel on which the film was based. And the difference between the novel and the film. This really is a classic film, the one that many point to as the one that started it all. Um, Dracula? Uh, sure. But, you know, seriously, one minute a week? How long is Frankenstein? Frankenstein is 71 minutes. Are you sure we can uh, keep this going for 71 weeks? Oh, sure, no problem. I mean, this is Frankenstein we're talking about, not Dracula. Good point. We'll discuss characters' motivations and talk about the great performances and John Bowles. <laughs> Don't forget Kenneth Strickfadden and his amazing electrical devices. We'll even reveal which of the lead actors grew up in sleepy little Chaska, Minnesota. Frankenstein Minute premieres on August 31st, 2018. Where? You know, the usual places, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube. And check us out on FrankensteinMinute.com and Facebook and Twitter, if that's still a thing. Is Twitter still alive? Oh, it's alive. It's alive? It's alive!
There are some doors that should never be opened. One of them is the door to the shuttered room. I wouldn't take her into that old house, mister. Lesson you want her to end up like this. The terror begins on the road to the house with the shuttered room. There's no hope for Susanna if she spends even one night in that house. Why, um, detect a threat there somewhere? Did you feel it? Feel what? When you opened that door, it was like I was standing in front of a refrigerator. The terror is a touch. A sound. A sense of someone watching. That stains two people with the secret of what lies in the shuttered room and beyond. Please, let me go. I have to see my husband. Well, what's wrong with staying right here and passing the time of day with me? Hey, Chief. That sure is a lovely wife you got there. And you know, I hear tell she's just as pretty all over. You wouldn't happen to know what your wife's doing right now, would you? Hey, maybe Ethan knows what this guy's wife's doing. Maybe this guy's wife knows what Ethan is doing. Because maybe they're doing the same thing together. Wait a minute. Let me help you. One night in the house with the shuttered room. And you may never want to sleep again. Monster Kid Radio listeners, you know I like my spooky surf music. I open every episode of Monster Kid Radio with some sort of instrumental surf, but that's not the only kind of monster music out there. I mean, of course, we all know the Monster Mash and Thriller and maybe some of Alice Cooper's work, but the guest that I have on this week, David Accord, is an author, the man behind the book Graveyard Groove. It's a phenomenal book, very extensive, and it's going to tell you everything you need to know about monster music and then some. David, welcome to the show. Derek, thank you so much for having me. So Graveyard Groove, The Haunted History of Monster Music from Monster Mash to Horror Punk. This came out earlier this year. Correct. It just came out uh, just a few weeks ago, actually. This is a, a phenomenal read. I was just telling David before we started recording that I was worried that I wouldn't finish the book before our recording. So I got up early this morning, sat down with a cup of coffee, and, and finished it, and I was riveted. I mean, there's so much stuff in here. How long have you been a fan of monster music, David? Gosh, I can remember hearing, you know, listening to, you know, Monster Mash and The Thing by Phil Harris. That was one of the first ones I ever heard when I was a little kid. I've been a monster kid since probably birth, you know. <laughs> so I've always been interested in the music. 
and uh, just sort of, you know, pick up the songs as I went along. And, you know, like a lot of you guys probably would buy those compilation albums and later CDs, you know, the Halloween song compilations you would get from KTEL, you know, and, uh, and things like that. And but it was always, you know, sort of like the same 10 or 12 songs. As I got older and did more research, and I kept finding more and more songs and other people would introduce me to other songs. And I realized, wow, this is a lot bigger. I mean, this is a this is an actual subgenre, you know, in and of itself. So yeah, I've been listening to it since I was a little kid. You mentioned being a monster kid. You know, there's something we do with everybody that comes on the show, and, and I'm going to ask you to prove your monster kid worth because Uh-oh. we're going to play a round of the Classic <laughs> Five, sir. Okay. Now, you are a listener of the show. You're familiar with the Classic Five? I am. All right. So for listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a card game that we play here on the show. I've got a deck of cards here that I've been shuffling silently, as, as David's been telling us a little bit about his background. Each one of these cards has a this or that, yes or no style question about classic monster movies. There's no wrong answers. Some people call it a game. Some people call it an icebreaker. We call it the Classic Five. Are you ready to play, sir? I hope so. <laughs> All right. Card number one right off the top of the deck here. Which doctor do you prefer? Dr. Septimus Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein or Dr. Gustav Nienemann? In House of Frankenstein. Ooh. You know what? I automatically have to default to anything with the words Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, okay. So Dr. <laughs> Pretorius. You know, I always feel like that guy is so underrated. He was only in one movie, but he needs so much more action. There needs to be more Pretorius in the world. Exactly. You know, well, that whole movie, you know, I feel mm-hmm. like you watch it and you just – you sort of feel like you're – I don't know. It's it's like you're watching like one episode of a long-running TV series, you know, and you just want to go back. You wish there were more episodes of it, you know, yeah. to explore these these characters more and just to see more of that stunning you know cinematography too so it's gorgeous it's gorgeous all right card number two what is your favorite classic 3d film creature yeah creature from the black lagoon yeah this is why we can be friends couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. I'm actually wearing my creature from the Black Lagoon T-shirt now because I didn't know. I thought we were going to do video, so I had to wear my cre- I had to wear my creature shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Representing man. Representing. <laughs> All right, card number three. What character from a classic monster movie would you like to hang out with for a day? Ooh, great question. Let's see. I'd have to say. Oh yeah, I'll go with an I'll go with an easy one. I have to hang out with. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's uh, doctor character in Invasion of the Body Snatchers because wow. uh, I always I always love that character and I love that sort of you know just perfect suburban California experience you know that it's in that film you know it's just this perfect little town and I think he's a great character. Huh. I've never had anybody answer that question like that. That's that's awesome. No, that's great. I love it. I like the idea. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of the straight men in these monster movies. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like you know John Agar and those 
guys. And I, I love the the 50s sort of um, feel of these movies just as much as, as I love the monsters. Another reason why you and I can be friends, you just kindly <laughs> name-dropped John Agar. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Card number four. Uh, William Castle or Bert I. Gordon? Oh, William Castle all the way. I just yeah? I just pre-ordered the uh, first uh, Blu-ray set, the import Blu-ray set of the William Castle movies. Uh, so that's coming out in a couple weeks. So I'm really excited about that. Going to hear uh, commentary tracks for the first time on some of these great William Castle movies. So mm-hmm. yeah, I've got my eye on that set too. So we're very excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, and final card. And this was not planned, but I think it's appropriate considering what we're talking about here. What classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? Oh my gosh. What classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? Okay, I'll give you one. How about I Married a Monster from Outer Space? A beautiful, innocent girl on her honeymoon. Her passionate dreams of perfect romance turned into a living nightmare. For this sweetheart she married, the man she had loved, was merely the hollow shell for the invaders from outer space. Bill! Who would believe her? Who could help her through the flesh-crawling terror of this unearthly marriage, when anyone she turned to could be one of them? Could she touch the body of this masquerading alien who wanted to learn the secrets of human love? Your race has no women. It can't have children. It will die out. Eventually, we'll have children with you. What kind of children? All kind. Was it true? Could space monsters mate with Earth women? See the startling answer in the shocker of them all. Oh, I love even the title itself would lend itself to being sung. I love it. I was going to say I'm trying to imagine something that could be done on a stage, you know, that wouldn't require. I was, I'm, you know, can't do like a big bug movie or something because that would be hard to do. But imagine like just the domestic drama of that, right? Of like mm-hmm. this woman, you know, marrying this guy and coming to find out that he's not who she really thinks he is. The spotlight can come down on her and she can sing a song about her, you know, about her anxiety <laughs> of having married a monster. Then you got that you got the great scenes of them and the of of the monsters meeting together in that uh, that roadside cafe and then you've got the final touching tragic uh, scene where he dies. Yeah, hey, you can make it. Uh, you know what? Maybe you've given me an idea. Maybe that'll be my next project. I don't know. Hey, I, I like that idea a lot actually. <laughs> I'm I'm on board. I'd see that. I'd watch. I'd pay to watch that. <laughs> Well, that was the Classic Five, sir. And I know I said there are no winners or losers. There's no way to lose the game. But you, sir, you've won. And your prize is that you get to be on Monster Kid Radio this week. Perfect. And you know what? I'm already here. So it's just perfect It works out well. Yeah. (laughs) So the Graveyard Groove book, I want to talk about that. But I also want to talk a little bit about your background as an author because this is not your first book. No, I've written written several other books. You know, this sort of more mainstream commercial books, kind of business, uh, self help development things. I wrote a book on um, Abraham Lincoln and uh, another book on Sherlock Holmes. Sort of taking a look at them from a sort of a business self help standpoint. Um, uh, got a book called What Would Lincoln Do? That sort of looks at uh, some of the decisions he made in his life and how his his sort of 
method for dealing with with difficult situations that you can use in your own life. Did something similar with a book called Success Secrets of Sherlock Holmes, where I looked at how Arthur Conan Doyle wrote his Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, really, you know, they're almost like they're so autobiographical when you get into it. He really sort of dropped a lot of clues. <laughs> No pun intended. In those stories about how to, um, you know, deal with difficult situations and how to analyze problems and come up with solutions when there doesn't seem like there is a solution. So it's just very much like a manual for solving problems and, and logic. Uh, those were with just traditional publishers. And then I uh, wrote a book on my own a couple years ago called When Mars Attacked. And that was a full length uh, history of the Orson Welles uh, War of the Worlds broadcast and panic uh, in 1938. And I've also written a small, it's not really a book, it's more like a, a monograph, I guess you'd say, called The Other Mr. Lovecraft. And that is sort of a passion project of mine because I'm a huge Lovecraft fan. Lovecraft fans can get obsessive, and uh, there's been a lot written about no. uh, Lovecraft. <laughs> there's been, you know, pretty much, and again, it's one of those things where it, pretty much everything's been written about Lovecraft, and I just stumbled accidentally upon this old newspaper article about one of his relatives. And a lot has been written about his relatives, but nothing had been written about this guy. And I found this treasure trove of old newspaper articles about – I don't really want to give it away. But this guy had a very interesting life and these weird kind of supernatural uh, similarities, you know, these strange things that you know he was involved in. And it was just so, so bizarre that it would happen to be one of uh, Lovecraft's relatives. So I wrote that. And those are all available on Amazon along with uh, Graveyard Groove. So for those of you playing the drinking game at home, reason number three David and I can be friends is because he loves Lovecraft. Okay. And I, and I think we'll probably stop at this point with all the reasons because I think you and I are going to get along just fine. No more reasons are needed. So. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do want to comment on the other Mr. Lovecraft. I have also read that. I found it really enjoyable and interesting. And as as you say, Lovecraft fans can get pretty obsessive. I mean, we're 23 years into the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival here in the Portland, Oregon area. By the time this episode goes out, I will have gone to that 23rd year. And yeah, I mean, it's... There is so much about Lovecraft that's been written and hypothesized and made up it's really interesting to see another take on another aspect of lovecraftania that really hasn't been explored and i also like i said i really enjoyed the book as well thank you very much thank you for giving me something to uh add to my lovecraft collection oh you're very welcome it was it was a, it was a lot of fun to write <laughs> it, it was really good it was really good highly recommended but first people should read graveyard groove because that is what we're here to talk about today and it's a little bit more timely halloween's coming up we've got people putting together mixtapes and party tapes for their Halloween gatherings. And this book has one of the largest appendix. Is it appendix I? Appendices? Appendices? There's a huge I, appendix. Yeah, appendix. Yes, there appendices. you go. <laughs> There's a huge appendix in the back of this book uh, of pretty much every monster song under the sun. I, I don't know how you got to be an expert in this or whatever, but this list is so extensive. I mean, there's stuff in here I've never even heard of that I can't wait to track down. Well, you know, it's funny uh, because that was the very first thing I did when I mm -hmm. decided I wanted to write the book. And I wasn't even planning on putting that list in the back of the book until I realized, you know what? I think people would really like this after reading, you know, the text. They would probably want to see these things. So basically before I even wrote a word of the book, 
I spent every night after work and on the weekends compiling uh, a, just a massive Excel chart of all the monster songs I had and all the monster songs I could find because I've been collecting for many years. And so I put together an Excel chart of over a thousand songs and <laughs> each song is broken down into its own column and category. There's, you know, date, uh, name of the song, artist, title, album or single number, you know, if it, if it was a 45, um, the label, uh, the genre. Um, so I, I, I really took a lot of care and a lot of time. It took about a month to put all that together. And once I had that down, you know, you can just organize it by date. And I had a chronology. I had this first ever that I know of chronology of monster music, and you could just sort of track the progression of it. There's not a thousand songs in the appendix. There's close to it, but I left many out just because they were sort of tangential, or I thought putting them in would sort of beg the question. It would take too long to explain why I put them in, you know, some of them, because they weren't sort of obvious. So I left some of them out. But I was planning on using that. And I did use that as the as the research basis for my book and sort of the timeline, because I write in kind of a chronological order. But then toward the end of it, I realized, you know what, I think Monster Kids would want to see this list because I could, again, just sort of try and say, what would I want? I would want that that page after page of crazy song titles to go out and track down and put on my own mixtape. It's crazy, and I'm just blown away by how much there is out there. I mean, I know there's a lot. I knew there was a lot. I knew it didn't just you know begin and end with Monster Mash. I mean, I knew there was a lot out there. I mean, and even some things that, uh, again, could be kind of tangential you know, just spooky as opposed to monster stuff. I and mean, you, right, you make that, right. that distinction in the book, too, that sometimes the, the song might have a spooky title or even just an LP cover that has a monster on it, but that doesn't necessarily make it a monster song. So you make that distinction. And, and I know there's a lot out there, but the way you've put this together is just, I'd say my eyes are open, but maybe my ears are open instead because there's just so much on here or in this list. And one of my favorite sections here is where you're talking about Zachary. Oh yeah, and his work. And I'm just I'm fascinated by the correlation between horror hosts and, and monster music. Zachary wasn't the only one who did this, obviously, but he's probably the most well known. What what is it that you think that links horror hosting and making monster music? I think it goes back a couple of years. I think Zachary, obviously there would be no Zachary if a company called Screen Gems had not put together a package of movies for syndication known as Shock Theater. And I'm sure you're familiar with that. But uh, Shock Theater was a package of about, I want to say like 35 or 40, I can't remember the exact number, of horror movies, classic universal titles, you know, Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, all that was in that first batch, along with a, a number of other sort of B-movies. So Screen Gems was a syndication company in Hollywood, and they bought the rights and they put these together because uh, television stations at that time, television was very new, and television stations were just hungry for content because there was just – the networks were only broadcasting a couple hours a day, right? So they needed content, and the short story of that is they sold this package of horror movies called Shock Theater, Mm -hmm. and it was an incredible success. I mean some of these ratings for these TV stations I found, you know – their ratings went up like 1,400%, just crazy numbers when people first – because this is the first time a lot of people had seen these monster movies. Sure, you know? sure. Um, they hadn't been re-released in a long time, and television was brand new, and the kids, teenagers, you know, certainly hadn't seen them. So that came out, and then that begat – these movies begat shock theater. And it was actually at the 
uh, screen gems kind of gave stations the idea said, hey, when you run these movies, you should have like a sort of like a crazy horror host or somebody to kind of make fun of them. And one of the reasons why they did that, fascinating that I found out, was they were actually afraid. There was actually some concern from studio executives that, gosh, if we just sort of let these movies out into the wild, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this might disturb people. This might really scare people. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to be liable for that. We don't want to cause a panic. They're like, gosh. So they came up with this very clever idea of, hey, when you play these movies – Make fun of them, okay? <laughs> Which is sort of strange, but it's like sort of blunt the horror a little bit and make it clear to your audience that, hey, these are just kind of fun to watch, you know, and have a party and, you know, bring sort of like Halloween favors to your party and stuff and don't take it so seriously. So that sort of was the impetus for the first round of a horror host. And gosh, I'm sorry, that's a really long way to answer your question. But Zachary <laughs> was one of those, you know, first horror hosts and almost out of the gate. You know, he had no previous experience. His, his life story is very interesting. He was not allowed as a young child to watch horror movies. So he had no reference point for these. He was around 40 years old when he started. He was an actor in the Philadelphia area. He had no real experience. And so he came to these movies fresh. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was such a successful guy is because he was one of the more successful horror hosts and became like a legend later on is because those those early years, it was all brand new to him. He wasn't a monster kid, you know? So it wasn't like kind of boring or anything every time he saw something and he was you know he's being told to, to make fun of it and he was a very clever intelligent actor to begin with so you put those two together i think that's what gave him sort of uh sort of a, a cut above everyone else's sort of you know a little bit of an advantage now the, the music part this is what really birthed modern monster music were these shock theater movies because without shock theater there would be no Monster Mash, okay? There would be none of these uh, hundreds and hundreds of songs that I put uh, in my book because the movies erupted onto these local TV stations all across the country. Teenagers went nuts. And almost instantly, they started writing songs about what they saw. It was a combination of these crazy monster movies coupled with the birth of rock and roll and everyone wanting to be in a rock and roll band and everyone wanting to write a really cool song that would be heard at the local jukebox, right? Mm -hmm. So you had those two things coming together at just the right time as a confluence of factors that uh, can never really be repeated. So they wrote a bunch of crazy, silly monster songs because the, all the horror hosts were being crazy and silly. And a lot of these horror hosts would come up with little kind of songs on the fly on their programs. So the music, you know, just sort of went together with the movies in a really kind of natural way because they were two sort of pop culture phenomenons that were happening at the same time. You know, so it was sort of like, uh, you know, the chocolate and the peanut butter and the Reese's piece in the Reese's sandwich, you know, sort of coming <laughs> together. <laughs> the other thing that I also found super fascinating and stood out to me is, yeah, as somebody who looks at these movies and, and looks at a lot of the uh, material that was released to promote these films, the press kits and the, the Ballyhoo suggestions and things like that. I didn't realize that that extended to some of these monster songs, that stunts were 
arranged or organized with radio stations in, to, like, for example, play the same song over and over and over again to, quote unquote, protest something at the, at the radio station. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Yeah, Ballyhoo is a great word for it. And this was um, something that was it was a, a form of promotion, a very um, dishonest and unethical form of promotion. You know, it's <laughs> flat out. It was it was the early days of rock and roll and, you know, payola and all that all that stuff. But so what would happen was uh, these labels would come into these major markets and they would, you know, pay these disc jockeys money or pay the radio station money to do a promotional uh, campaign. And what would happen was they would basically, you know, create a controversy out of nothing. And this happened with uh, Zachary and dinner with Drac. Some of the protests for that, I think, were genuine. And some of them, I think, were kind of ginned up. And it happened with a lot of other monster music songs down the line because it turned out to be a very lucrative way and a, a way to sell a lot of 45 singles. And what would happen was... They would gin up a controversy about the lyrics or just about the fact that the the radio station was playing this song about this horrible, you know, this horrible song that our kids shouldn't be allowed to listen to, which, of course, made every teenager want to go out and buy it. Oh, right? of course. Yeah. And so the pattern was that the the evil station manager would say, we are not playing this horrible monster song. And the noble disc jockey, this happened, I uh, documented at least, I think, two or three or four cases of this happening all across the country over a period of years. So it was a, it was a script, right? right? So the evil evil station guy would say, you know, evil station manager, you can't play this song. And the noble disc jockey would say, you know what? I'm standing up for my kids. I'm standing up for my listeners. They want to hear this song. I'm going to lock myself in the studio and I'm going to play the song over and over again for like four or five hours straight. And if you don't like it, you can fire me. And so what would happen was they would play the song for four or five hours straight, right? And people would start calling in and stuff. And a lot of times they would create a mob. You know, they would pay people to actually come in. These mobs of teenagers would just spontaneously show up outside the radio station, which, you know, come on, that's not going to happen in real life. And so after four or five hours, the disc jockey would usually get fired, I'm using air quotes now, fired. <laughs> and that would lead to a rash of stories in the local papers. And then quietly the next week, the song would start getting played again. The disc jockey would be back on the air again. Nothing was ever said about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's sort of the, the carnival just rolled along from, from city to city. And that's how they did it. And even in today's numbers, it's pretty fascinating how many 45 singles some of these uh, novelty songs sold. You know, million sellers, multi-million sellers. And if you go into a, a market like, you know, just a Cleveland or Cincinnati or Philadelphia, they could clean up, man. They could sell tens of thousands of, of copies in just a couple of weeks by, uh, you know, ginning up this controversy. It really worked out well. You know, it was very effective, even though it was, you know, completely unethical. <laughs> it just blows <laughs> my mind that these, I can't imagine a stunt like that working today. So it just blows my mind to, to hear that not only was this something that was done repeatedly, it was super successful. And, you know, as much as I loved The Mummy, you know, the song The Mummy, right. I don't know if I could handle sitting there listening to it for three and a half, four hours in a row. Well, you if, know? You were, if, you, if you were counting the zeros on the end of the check that they wrote you, I think you could probably handle it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I suppose maybe at that point you just kind of deal with it. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and speaking of the mummy, this is something else that I found fascinating about the book. And again, this is something I didn't know. So thank you uh, for this. But with the release of the mummy, that wasn't just, hey, let's put out another monster song. This seemed to be timed to come out around the same time of Hammer's The Mummy being released here in the States. 
It exactly was. It was basically the, the American distribution of Hammer's 1959 Mummy. Once it was released in the UK, uh, one of the studios here in America got the rights to distribute it stateside. And so when they started to distribute it, um, they partnered together with a record label to basically write a song that could go along with the movie to promote it. And that's how The Mummy was born. It's sort of odd because it's a it's a jokey novelty song. And, you know, of Hammer's The Mummy is not a jokey movie at all. No. <laughs> and so I, I don't understand that, but it happened twice. They did it uh, once with The Mummy and then they did it again when Hammer sold the rights to the U.S. distribution for Brides of Dracula. And the next year they did the same thing. They had a jokey song and in both cases, the, the connecting tissue between both of those is a guy named Rob McEwen, which I'm an older guy. I'm, I'm sure you know who Rob McEwen is. Maybe some of the younger listeners don't. But he was a very famous, you know, sort of uh, hipster poet in the 60s and 70s and made a lot of money on uh, spoken word albums and very syrupy type of, you know, poetry, love poetry. But before that, late 50s and early 60s, he was a songwriter, among other things, and an actor. And he got together with another guy and they, they wrote this song called The Mummy. And, you know, I, again, I'm, I sort of live in that sort of 50s, 60s era of pop culture. I love it. So I get all those pop culture references. I don't know if someone listening today, if they weren't familiar, if they would really even understand, you know, it would just sort of sound kind of strange. Like they were making all these references to Kooky from 77 Sunset Strip, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that song really sort of stands up today just because the references are kind of forgotten. But yeah, it was it was definitely done to promote the movie. And one of the things, this is sort of on my, now on my uh, list of things that I need to find is that they would they sent around promotional kits Ooh. to DJs to promote the song. And it would have like little mummy dolls in it. And they would have like old aged bandage tape to look like mummy wrappings. <laughs> <laughs> and they would, they would send this, they would send these kits around and uh, I've never been able to find one. And I was like, that's just sort of like the, the holy grail, you know, to be able to find one of those those uh, those promotional kits. And that would be really cool to find. Probably pretty pricey. So, uh, but yeah, I would imagine it'd be pretty neat to get your hands on that, to see your original material. I mean, I love looking at the old press books for that same reason, just to see the gimmicks and everything they would send around for this stuff. So, wow, that sounds cool. That's <laughs> <laughs> and I want to comment on something you just said that maybe people won't get the pop culture references. That's something that I love about these older movies is that you get a glimpse into what society might have been like during that time. You get It's, it's a little bit of a sociological experiment or, or deep dive to kind of pick up on Absolutely. some of that stuff. And it's fascinating to see that I can get that in my movies and now in some of this classic monster music. People might not understand the references, but it'll give you a jumping off point to maybe explore a little bit more. So maybe something like The Mummy will teach you a little bit more about pop culture in the 50s and 60s, which is kind of cool when you think about it. It's not just yeah. monster entertainment, but it's educational, right? Sort of. And really, <laughs> exactly. And the, the Mummy is sort of like, it sort of lays across several different genres because it's a monster music song. It's a novelty song. There's also a whole genre of sort of novelty beatnik songs and hipster songs. And this was very much also at the same time that it was playing to the monster crowd, it was sort of parodying the the beatnik and hipster movement that in 59 60 you know with Kerouac and all that was you know was really on the on the upswing as well so it's sort of an inter that song especially is kind of an interesting little uh, time capsule i think mm -hmm. so this is probably the most complete book that i or only book i've ever seen cataloging these uh, songs and such but i'm assuming there's material that you've stumbled across since this book has come out 
that that maybe if there's a second edition or a sequel you'd include is there anything that is missing that you would want to correct right now for listeners to kind of get maybe a, an exclusive yeah i think the one thing in retrospect and again i i you know, struggled over because it's not it's not a distinct category it, there, it's very subjective like we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier it's like mm-hmm. what what one person considers a monster song someone else might not right sure. so i had to make a lot of these subjective decisions and i think in retrospect the one thing the one area that i could probably write an entire book about that i deliberately left out it's in my master excel list but i didn't write about it in the book because at the time I thought this doesn't really fit and then after I published the book I was like you're an idiot of course it fit why did you put it in there (laughs) and that was children's records monster oriented children's records okay and there were a lot of them. Now, there weren't as many as there were singles because the you know, singles were easy to do. But monster-oriented and just sort of spooky-oriented children's records in general, there's a ton of them out there. And I, I think they kind of probably deserve their own book or at least run through, you know, like article or something. Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, as soon as you publish a book, this happens to me every time I put out a book. As soon as you publish it, you're like six weeks later, you're like – how can people read this book and not see what I left out? How, I'm, I'm so embarrassed, right? How could I possibly miss – what was I thinking? You know? Well, I didn't bring it up to make you feel – I was just wondering <laughs> if there's anything exclusive for the listeners of Monster Kid Radio to know. But yeah, uh, the, the children's records, I could totally see that being a whole new volume, a whole new book because I'm sure there was plenty. There was a lot. Now, there's there was a lot of sound effect records too that I don't, you know, it's kind of like what can you really, what can you really say about those Halloween spooky sound effects? But yeah, there was a lot of Disney records from that era and a lot of you know that you know told spooky stories. And I think one of my sort of like the reason why I didn't really get into them, my justification was that a lot of them weren't really songs. They were sort of like narrated stories with musical accompaniment Mm -hmm. and i was like well you know just i'm talking about music specifically and so you know sort of two and a half minute singles that type of thing so i'd better stick to that so a lot of those records were sort of a mix of you know narration and and songs and things like that you know children's records in general is a a really overlooked genre there's just so much great stuff out there Mm -hmm. no there there really is and yeah i mean we could totally dovetail and because i mean i've got a ton of those sound effects records and i have a couple things from disney i'm sure from my youth that i've later i lost as a kid and then i've reacquired as i've you know discovered ebay and things exactly yeah we're we're living parallel lives here man i I hear you i hear you and (laughs) you even comment in this book not just on the standalone releases you know the monster mash and and everything else and the mummy but actual songs that appeared in films specifically the theme song from the green slime or the blob and thank you right. you're welcome listeners for me getting that song stuck in your head right now but uh <laughs> i mean you talk about the green slime a little bit and you talk more about the blob theme song and i'm fascinated by the blob theme song because that was not something the original filmmakers wanted in the film for good reason too, right <laughs> it, doesn't I mean, fit. it doesn't fit at all it's like the, it's like the songs they they produced to promote the hammer movies it doesn't go together there's no rhyme or reason to it i mean these are serious movies why would you want a jokey song it would just totally kill the kill the mood i would think it sold records yeah it made somebody a lot yeah. of money <laughs> <laughs> That's that was always the bottom line for these guys. Yeah, uh, I also appreciated the information on Screamin' Jay Hawkins, which is yes, somebody I don't know much about. I mean, I know I put a spell on you. I guess I've never really looked, and maybe this is reason to take 
like a corner off my Monster Kid card. I didn't realize that predated Monster Mash. It did, yeah, by several years. Yeah, I had no idea. And Screaming Jay Hawkins, I mean, his stage act must have been amazing to see. It had that sort of Ballyhoo um, spook show type influence. Um, had a lot of a lot of monsters, a lot of skulls, a lot of voodoo elements on stage. And again, I'll be honest with you, I put a spell on you. That's a Halloween mixtape sort of standard. And a lot of people are going to argue, and I do in the book, there's no monster in that song. Right. So it's like, well, you could you could easily make the argument that that's not a monster music song. I make the argument in the book that the singer is the monster in that song. You know, he's so <laughs> spooky and so scary. He sort of becomes, he's what makes that a scary song. And the subject matter too, just about wanting, to, you know, to be with someone so bad that you try to, you know, put a spell on them to, to keep them with you. But he's just a great guy. And I, I probably there was just sort of like some personal preference there of putting him in. But I do feel like he was sort of one of those kind of early stage setters for the monster music trend that came years later. He was just one of those guys that sort of put something out there that sort of, you know, influenced other people later on. Well, it's your book. You can decide what goes on it. So, <laughs> you know, if anybody's got any issues, you know, sure. write your own book. Write an um, Amazon review. <laughs> oh, no, don't. I mean, unless it's a positive review. Unless, then, well, then that's right. Friend. That's right. Yeah. Email me for the <laughs> negative stuff. Amazon <laughs> <for> the positive. <laughs> What's the reaction been to the book? Well, so far, so good. I wrote this realizing it was going to have a, you know, sort of a narrow sort of monster kid reach. And I was really nervous because I thought I was going to get a rash of. Uh, what about ism, you know, after I put it out, like, well, what about this song? You know, and then they're going to bring up something I'd never heard of. And that luckily that hasn't really happened. I did have one guy because I was on Twitter, you know, I've been sort of promoting the book and sort of posting like little things from it a couple months before it came out and say, hey, I'm working on this. And, you know, I would just post some images and post some song lists that I come up with. And people who follow me on Twitter are, um, you know, a lot of them are into this same type of thing. So someone would DM me and say, well, you say you're going to write about werewolf songs, but do you know about this, you know, or send me your list. I want to see what you have, you know, that type of thing. So I'd be happy to, you know, I send, send them the list. And so these people were, I consider them kind of experts too. Right. Mm -hmm. So I never really got like a, you know, fingers crossed. There hasn't been like someone who's just pointed out like a glaring error to me that I left out. You know, hopefully I got everything. But, you know, the early reviews have, have been have been really positive. And people are, I think, who follow me on Twitter are kind of predisposed to that. But so far, so good. But that's always in the back of your mind when you do something like this, because you're all you're going to worry that there's someone out there who knows more about it than you. You know, and they're gonna, they're going to like rise up like a creature out of the ocean and say, oh, you <laughs> in chapter two, you said X, but in reality, you know, that thing, that type of thing. But it hasn't happened yet. You, you talk about you have this list of over a thousand songs at home. I'm, that makes you pretty expert in my book. You talk about selective and you were talking about surf music earlier. That's another area where I cut out a lot of. You know, I could have put in probably 50 or 60 other songs because, you know, you you being a surf music guy um, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, I love listening to the intros of, of each episode because I, I discover new surf bands I didn't know about. But that was, you know, that was a real trick of these of these instrumental bands back then, because once the monster craze started hitting big time, all they would do was just play like an instrumental song that was just sort of a ripoff of, you know, Link Ray or whoever. And it wasn't that great, but they would just add sound effects to it mm -hmm. and then come up with a spooky title for it. And, oh, 
there you go. You know, there's a there's a monster song. And some of those I avoided just because, well, you know, why do I want to point people to these when they go to them? There's really not going to be much there. Mm -hmm. Right. It's pretty obvious. They just sort of stick a scream or a, a haunted house moan or something on it. That doesn't really you know, you could argue that that makes it monster music. So uh, some of them, some of them are in there and some of them aren't. But surf music and monster music, you know, kind of went together there. Mm -hmm. They were sort of close buddies for a while. Well, and, and you t you t uh, touch on that, too. I mean, you mentioned the Del Air Zombie Stomp. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you do mention instrumental surf. You do have the ghastly ones in the list in the back and the appendix in the back. So you do mention that. And you also talk about some of these other songs that may have sound effects or clips, like the break-in records you mentioned right. at the beginning of the book, that sort of thing. So while those may be things that you and I as Monster Kids enjoy, it's not necessarily a monster song. I mean, and... and to me, that makes sense, and you do make that definition pretty clear. Individual taste will vary, so. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I, I am inspired by the book. I think it's got a lot of uh, worth, not just as a list of, hey, I want that song on this song, and I want to check out Deadbolt now. And Oh, please do. Oh, my gosh. Deadbolt is one of my favorite bands, yeah. I've never, I've never listened to them, so I'm excited to check that out. There's so much in here that I want to check out now, and uh, yeah, you've given me a new obsession you said the obsessive comp compulsiveness uh, of somebody wanting all this music now we're just collectors man there's nothing wrong with that yeah i mean yeah <laughs> it's, that's the thing I, I thought well at least it's not costing me money by putting all these in here so you know so that's where your that's where your ocd kind of works in your favor when you're writing a book you can be a completist in this and eh, it's just it's just ink right so right so yeah. Not, yeah you're not gonna have to go out and buy the single the book itself runs about 105 yeah it's 105 pages before we get to the appendix but the appendix is run until page 147 so it's pretty in-depth yeah, it's pretty in-depth. People, when they read the book, don't get disappointed You know that I don't start talking about Monster Mash right away. And it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to it, but I was really trying to sort of lay the track, mm -hmm. you know, sort of lay, lay the groundwork and show how this genre kind of evolved. And, you know, those early blues singers, they had some, you know, it was mostly ghost songs and, you know, spook, spook songs and things like that. But they had some great songs. And again, that all ties in. I mean, it's all just sort of like building slowly. Mm -hmm. Over, over the years. And I think that's probably the best way to read this book. You said earlier that you were kind of worried about like the, well, what about this? Or what about that? And yeah, I mean, sure, maybe there's a horror host song that didn't make it in your book. But I think the takeaway from the book is that this may not be every single monster song out there, but it's the important ones. And it's the one that laid the groundwork for everything that's come before and, and coming now. I mean, you wouldn't have Rob Zombie doing what he does or Alice Cooper in the 70s or I don't know what a current act is now because I don't listen to a lot of modern music. But you wouldn't have that style of stage show and music if not for Screaming Jay Hawkins, if not for the Monster Match or even this old uh, these older blues songs or the spooky songs that you have. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't have any of that. So, so that's how I look at this book, I think, is more of a historical text to kind of show you the building blocks and the important stepstones and keystones along the way that was does that, that make sense exactly and that that was the goal to show that you know to prove to maybe people who've been listening to this music for years and always kind of just was kind of maybe embarrassed about it or didn't take it that seriously say hey look this really is a part of something bigger it this really was an important part of pop culture and monsters and that sort of interest in the supernatural it's always you know it's it's had a huge influence on 
on just pop culture, not just in America, but around the world. You know, some of the biggest, and again, I could have gone on forever about, you know, the current sort of monster music bands, but some of the biggest, you know, monster music bands that are sort of, you know, in the vein more of, you know, the Cramps and the Misfits and sort of inspired by that. But some of the biggest ones uh, around are in Europe, you know, in Germany and, and places like that. I mean, there's still a kind of a subculture here. But it's still going strong around the world, too. So I just wanted to kind of give people more of a just a widescreen rather than a, you know, a TV screen version of, of this stuff they've probably <laughs> been listening to for a long time. I think you were successful on that. And I really hope people check this book out. I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes for people to hop onto Amazon and buy their own copy. You know what? Let me say this. It's got the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. One of these days, I'm going to have an actual seal that I can give out to people. I want one. But <laughs> I definitely uh, think this book is worthy. It's also going to uh, make the holiday gift guide at the end of the year. Oh, fantastic. I, I highly recommend this book. I'm going to go write an Amazon review for it later this week as well. Thank you so much. Uh, so, yeah, definitely. And and I want people to be able to pick it up and, and find it easily. Like I said, it's on Amazon. It was independently published. Is that yeah, right? I, yeah, I did it myself. So when you buy a copy, ladies and gentlemen, you're putting money directly into <laughs> David's pocket, which is something that we should do for all our fellow monster kids, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> What's coming up next for you? you? have any books in the works or anything monster movie related that, that listeners might be interested in or genre stuff at all? Well, funny you should mention it. I am actually this weekend putting the finishing touches on believe it or not another book this is one that um i've been working on off and on literally for over five years graveyard groove took me about six months start to finish and i did it in one chunk this book because in addition to being a huge uh, monster kid i'm a huge halloween guy and i'm a you know just go figure <laughs> yeah exactly uh two kind of go together but huge you know halloween's my favorite holiday and i've always been deeply deeply interested in the folklore and the mythology and sort of just the 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 traditions of halloween and sort of you know it's sort of ancient roots and things like that so hmm. um okay. i am working on and again just finishing it up it should be on amazon in the next couple of weeks it's the first ever book devoted to the history of the jack-o-lantern it's called jack-o-lantern the strange story of the Halloween pumpkin and oh. it basically encompasses about 1500 years of folklore and mythology and we basically surrounding the jack-o-lantern and we basically see how it was created and uh, I'll give you a sneak peek had nothing to do with pumpkins and had nothing to do with Halloween uh, for for many <laughs> many years and many many centuries going back to ancient Roman times you can go back and find references to jack-o'-lanterns in ancient Roman times, actually. So I wanted to write a book because I've always been fascinated by the jack-o'-lantern um, and just its history. So that's coming out. Um, that should be out. I'm probably going to be sending it to Amazon uh, this coming week. So it should be out by early October. So if you guys are kind of interested in folklore and tradition and those old types of stories. Yeah, you, you've uh, got my interest up. I would love to read that as well. So please keep me posted about when that comes out because uh, I'll be adding it to my bookshelf, it sounds like. I hope people are uh, uh, are going to find it interesting. Sounds good. I'll keep an eye out for that as well. Now, do you have a, a web presence or is the best place for people to find you your Amazon author page? Uh, Amazon author page and also I'm on Twitter. That's pretty much the only okay. thing I do. Okay. I'm uh, at Captain October, all one word. That is the coolest uh, Twitter <laughs> handle I've heard in a long time. I love it. 
<laughs> I was lucky. It was I when I, I that's the one I wanted. I said, eh, somebody's gonna snag that one already. And I was just floored when it was still available, so I grabbed it. So it's uh, Captain October, all one word. <laughs> and um, I post a lot of um, Halloween stuff, and I also post a lot of monster music stuff, and a lot of uh, pre-code horror comics, which is another thing I collect. So a lot of covers and a lot of artwork from you know the sort of the classic horror comics too so i'm at your twitter page right now it looks like i'm already following you i wanted to make sure i was uh and yeah i'm looking here i'm just scrolling down there's all sorts of <laughs> pre-code horror stuff and i'm loving it oh this is <laughs> yeah, great stuff great. man I'm, I'm gonna get lost in this i don't check in on twitter as often as i should even though i've got a twitter account as well but this wow might have just found something to do this afternoon, just kind of scrolling through and checking all this artwork out. <laughs> yeah, like I said, we've got three reasons now why we're friends. Um, so let's have you back on the show to talk about a movie down the line, too, at some point. Absolutely. And like I said, when I was writing the book, it was just in the back of my mind. I was like, gosh, I really hope I'm going to email him. I hope he emails me back, you know, because I was like, this would be perfect for Monster Kid Radio. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> I love talking with fellow Monster Kid creatives. It is so cool to hear about all the awesome things Monster Kids are doing, including putting out books. And it kind of hews close to my heart because I'm also a writer and plan to publish some things here soon. David Accord's book is solid. I did go in and leave an Amazon review. Five stars. And I meant it. This book is solid. It's an easy breezy read packed with tons of awesome information. Gave me plenty of ideas for songs to track down and listen to this Halloween season. David, thank you so much for being part of the show this week. And yeah, listeners, there are links in the show notes for you to go straight to Amazon to pick up Graveyard Groove as well as his new book, Jack-O-Lantern, The Strange History of the Halloween Pumpkin from Ancient Times to Present. They're $9.99 a piece. Check them out. Thanks again, David. The lonely, helpless earth. The 21st century. The world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space. Growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect. Exploding in unspeakable horror, the green slime. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars, the green slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. One woman searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. A battle in space against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible, the shock world of... Green slime!
Storyteller, you need to check out Archivos, a new story mapping and development tool from WonderThink Studios. Archivos provides storytellers with a unique opportunity, the chance to actually see the network of interaction between the story elements of their settings. Through Archivos's interactive narrative maps, storytellers can discover and explore the patterns and structures that illuminate their stories. Archivos even allows you to share those maps with your readers, providing an utterly unique and compelling format for fan engagement. Archivos really is the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. Hey, Derek, this is Richard, the monster movie kid, the Kansas City cinephile, whatever you want to call me. I am calling in for the first time in a very long time. First off, to say hello. Hope everything is going well with you and yours over there at Monster Kid Radio. And I want to share with you, I've got some really cool screenings that I'm going to be attending here in the next couple of weeks. As I'm recording this, it is Monday afternoon, October 15th. We're just, what, two weeks and two days away from Halloween. I'm going to be taking Halloween off this year and spending the entire day seeing movies, seeing classic universal Frankenstein flicks and maybe a few others thrown in for good measure. Uh, you know, my wife Carla loves Universal. She loves Hammer. She loves the classics. And so far, she's only seen the first two, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein in the Universal series. So we're going to be going through Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman for sure. Um, that's coming up on Halloween, but that's not the screening I'm talking about. We're going to be going to some screenings of some classic silent flicks and we're going to see them on the big screen. The first is coming up this Saturday, um, October 20th, in nearby Ottawa, Kansas. It's about 45 minutes away. And there is a theater there known as the Plaza Theater. And it is the oldest operating cinema in the world. It was built in 1907. And now it hasn't been open consecutively. There was a period of time there it was closed. But several years ago, they refurbished it, they reopened it, and yes, it is still playing movies. I've never been there. 
I've wanted to see this beautiful theater, and this year we're going to get a chance to see it because they're doing a live screening of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920. Now, they're also going to be playing uh, the other 1920, the the shorter version of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and then the Stan Laurel comedy short, Dr. Pickle and Mr. Pride. Um, they're going to have live music accompaniment uh, from Dr. Marvin Falwell, who is well known here in the area as uh, an organist who does silent films. And uh, I'm just looking forward to it. They have a movie memorabilia museum there that I think is a lot of fun. Uh, I've seen some pictures of it. And so uh, Carl and I and Jeff Owens, my cohort in crime from the Classic Horus Club podcast, uh, he's going to be going as well. And that's coming up in less than a week. On the 26th of October, Carl and I are going to nearby Topeka, Kansas, which is about an hour away, for an annual event called Silence in the Cathedral. It takes place at the Grace Cathedral Church, and for that night, the Grace Cathedral Church plays silent films. And last year was my first time attending. It was amazing seeing Nosferatu in a church setting. Um, you know, just days away from Halloween. This year, not quite as good, but a classic. I wouldn't consider it a Halloween flick, but nonetheless, they're going to be playing The Lost World from 1925. They're also going to be playing the uh, short subjects Ghost of Slumber Mountain from 1918 and the 1927 Laurel and Hardy short called Flying Elephants. Again, Dr. Marvin Falwell is going to be there because this is actually part of the Kansas Silent Film Festival. They do this every year. Uh, The big festival takes place in February. It's a two-day event, but throughout the year they do these special events. Best of all, this one's free to the public. Uh, They have uh, percussion from a gentleman by the name of Bob Kikaisen, who is a a cohort in crime of Dr. Marvin Falwell. It's a great event and uh, had so much fun at it last year. Uh, My sister and her husband go as well. So it's going to be a fun night at the Silence in the Cathedral. Then on uh, the 29th, Monday the 29th, this isn't a, a silent film, but it's a classic that probably very few of you have seen. It's Frankenstein, but it's the 2011 stage production starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, This was put out by Fathom Events as one of those in-theater, live theater events uh, now six years ago now. And uh, it's uh, directed by Danny Boyle, and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller but in alternating roles. When this was on stage, they would alternate the roles every other night. Several years ago, I saw this, and Benedict Cumberbatch played the creature in the version that I saw. It was amazing. First off, seeing a stage play on the big screen in a theater, that itself was really cool, but this is an amazing, amazing production. Um, and so if you've got a Fathom Events Theater near you that plays these events, man, I highly recommend you check it out. Um, a lot of smaller cities don't have this. Uh, certainly when I was down in Wichita, they didn't do any of these kind of events. So, uh, And this is something that's not going to be released on home video anytime soon. I wish it was because it's amazing. This year I'm going to have an opportunity to see Benedict Cumberbatch in the version where he plays Victor Frankenstein and Johnny Lee Miller will play the monster, uh, the creature. And that'll be on Monday the 29th. And Jeff is going with us on that as well. And then two days later on Halloween night, we are going to be going 
to see The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the 1923 silent classic with Lon Chaney Sr., uh, this is at the Kaufman Center for Performing Arts here in Kansas City. They bring in, a, uh, I guess, a world-renowned organist by the name of Dorothy Papadakis. Uh, they're bringing in a percussionist this year. She does an original uh, orchestration to these silent films. I saw her uh, do Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde several years ago. Uh, and this year, they're doing Hunchback. And it's been a few years since I've been to this. It's a beautiful facility. It's uh, kind of a classy way to spend a Halloween night. And, of course, this is a classic, classic flick. So uh, Jeff is going to be joining us as well for that. Uh, great opportunity to see a classic film with uh, amazing live music. So, yeah, I've got some really cool classic screenings coming up in the next uh, two and a half weeks. I wanted to share it with you. And, uh, well, you know what? It's Halloween, and I'm just having a lot of fun. I'm doing my countdown to Halloween, one movie every day, and doing a lot of new films this year. I did some Paul Nashi, some Santo films, uh, doing the Bloodthirsty trilogy, uh, some other films that uh, I had never uh, had an opportunity to see before. Uh, including uh, a film I just got on Blu-ray, The Picture of Dorian Gray, the 1973 version from Raro Video, which is another one of these new companies that just popped up. I picked up The Long Hair of Death with Barbara Steele a while back from them and uh, did a pre-order for Picture of Dorian Gray. So that came in just in time for the Halloween season. Having a lot of fun over at the blog. Uh, all those reviews are over at uh, kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Of course, Jeff and I, we uh, got back in gear this month with the uh, Classic Horse Club podcast, and we uh, had a fun month, a hammer Halloween, and uh, coming up in, well, gosh, I guess in a few weeks, we're going to be doing uh, several of the Dr. Moreau films. Uh, we're doing The Island of Lost Souls, uh, the, what, what is it, The Twilight People, which is a version I've never even heard of, but I've got it. Uh, of course, the 77 version. We're going to talk about Terror as a Man. And then in December, we're doing a Creepy Coen Christmas where we're doing the It's Alive trilogy. Nothing screams happy holidays like the It's Alive trilogy. Um, having a lot of fun. And uh, it's been a long time since I called in. So I just wanted to say, hey, I'm listening each and every week. I'm usually several weeks behind, but uh, I'm having fun and just wanted to share with you what I've got coming up in the next uh, two and a half weeks. Uh, I know things have been happening for you, your Plan 9 podcast. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, good things happening for you. And I know uh, uh, you're ready for Halloween as well. I know you're, you've got your own plans for Halloween as you do every year. So looking forward to that. I'm going to leave you. Just want to say all is well here in Kansas City. Um, still listening each and every week. And happy Halloween. Hi, Bryn. Take care. Hello. Hey, it's feedback time, and we started with Rich. Richard. I know. That's um, who I was saying hello to, not oh, you. Excuse not me. Not you. Excuse me. <laughs> At the beginning of that, he says, I'm Richard, the Monster Movie Kid. We'll call you whatever you want. You know what I call you, Rich? Richard from Wichita. That's how you're going to be in my head, no matter how many times you move away mm. from Wichita. Just that's how I met you. That's how I know you. How many times has he moved away from Wichita? I guess he can only do it once. But he's <laughs> Unless moved he goes back. He's moved a couple of times, though, is the thing. Yes. So, anyway. <laughs> uh, thanks for sending that in, man. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I'll make sure there are links to all these events 
in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. And if there's anybody in the area that might be interested in checking that stuff out, look for Rich, look for Carla, look for Jeff. I'm sure it'll be a good time. Yeah. That is so cool. And you're right. I've got my own Halloween plans. And I'll talk about that at the end of the show, Mm. or unless Brenda wants to talk about it right now. I don't know what your Halloween plans are right now. So there's a document on that computer. I saw that. There's a PDF. Okay. So there are five things on there. Horror of Dracula. Horror of Dracula is happening this Friday at the Halloween Halloween Theater. The Hollywood Theater. Oh, and are you going? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How much money are you spending on this stuff? My ticket's been paid for. Okay. Saturday, October 20th is the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Caligari? Caligari. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's going to be with live music at the Joy Cinema. Okay. Scream, Blackula, scream. Scream, Blackula, scream. You know, I can't hear the title of that movie without thinking about a public enemy song from the 90s that's Burn, Hollywood, Burn. And I hear Scream, Blackula, scream in Chuck D's voice to the cadence of that song. <laughs> scream, Blackula, scream. I hear a riot going on. First, but then you Never mind. That's not what people tune into Monster Kid Radio for. I don't know. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> So, when is that? Uh, it should be listed on there. It's Friday the 26th at 9.45. That's going to be amazing. Where, though? Uh, that's also the Hollywood Hollywood Theater. Okay. And then Silent Phantom of the Opera. Yes. <laughs> that I am looking forward to a lot. That's also at the Hollywood Live Organ Accompaniment to oh, the wow. Original Phantom. Neat. That's going to be That's dope. Saturday, 10.27. Mm-hmm. And then that evening is the last thing on my list, The Mask, that's which right. is Canada's first monster movie. I believe it's going to be in 3D. And that's it's at from the, 61. From 1961. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's going to be at the, is it the Fifth Avenue Cinema? It doesn't say. I think that, well, I know where it's at. It's, I think that's what it's called. It's the Fifth Avenue Cinema. And I know I'm going to that as well. Now, I know that Chris McMillan will be going to a number of these events with me, as will Dominique Lamsey's. In fact, Dominique is the one that brought the mask to my attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, she also mentioned Phantom. Anyway, I'm really excited about all this and meeting up with people. If you're in the local area, I would love to meet up with you and enjoy this classic horror stuff with you this mm-hmm. Halloween season. And then, of course, on Halloween Day itself, we're doing a virtual crash where oh. we're going to be showing movies on the Monster Kid Radio Rabbit TV, and there will be a live chat going the entire time. I'm going to be in there, and if you have an account with Rabbit TV, and I'll talk about that at the very end of the show, you can join the party. Mm. It's going to be so much fun. I'm going to be at work dressed up as... Chief Brody from Jaws. Yes. Why, why is that? Because our office chose to do uh, like Shark Week theme, and I'm in Shark Alley, but I didn't want to be a shark. You're in Shark Alley. Well, that's what our row is called. Oh, shark. Okay. I thought that was row of cubies. I got really excited that like your work actually calls your area Shark Alley. Oh, well, they should so from cool. now on. Yeah. <laughs> so down Shark Alley, and they're going to be a bunch of sharks, but I'm just going to have a, maybe like a triangle thing made out of, uh, what do you call that? It's not construction stiff paper, the thick stuff. Okay, like poster board maybe or um, Yeah, but what's I used to use it all core? the time, foam core in architecture school. Yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna make a not to scale boat. <laughs> I have to find a cheap fishing rod and I'm just gonna walk around saying, We're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> We're gonna need a bigger boat. Should I get a f- candy cigarette? Wait. 
He does. No, oh, he does smoke. Yeah, in that he does. Scene. He does smoke in that yeah. scene. Yeah. <laughs> I love you. So I was originally thinking I should just hang it over my shoulders by suspenders, but then I was thinking I could just buy an extra piece of foam core and put like backpack straps on it and it could kind of be like the um room area where oh, the, the wheel cabin. is in yeah the cabin okay. but i can then just put it on like a backpack <laughs> now you can take it off when you well yeah and i can anywhere. take it off if i just do suspenders from the boat hole why does boat hole sound terrible <laughs> i said hole Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> but boat hole does sound. <laughs> you and your boat hole. Oh, boy. Yeah, we're going to have to censor that. <laughs> so that's cool. I like that a lot. And uh, you came up with that all by yourself because mm-hmm. you're awesome. That's yes. going to be fun. That's going to be fun. I'm going to try to be grizzled. Grizzled? Yes. He's not that grizzled. That character but is the one. his attitude is grizzled. Not, well, kind of. He's the big city guy who moved to the island. I know, but he's just sort of, what do you call that when you're jaded? He's jaded. I think we might have to watch Jaws. Okay. I feel like he's jaded by the time he says you're gonna need a bigger boat. That's actually, he's more scared at that point because it's the first time he's seen the shark. Whatever, I'm taking my approach. That's true. You do have some poetic I'm from Alaska. It is your <laughs> Halloween costume. And all the fishermen are jaded. That's that's true. That's true. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks for calling in, Rich. That's right. <laughs> all right, so we have some emails. We've got uh, two short, one long, mm-hmm. and we have two voicemails. What mm-hmm. do you feel like tackling first? You know the show. You choose the flow. That rhymes. That's kind of why I said it. Can I work that into my Scream, Blackula Scream parody rap song? If you want. (laughs) Let's do an email. Greetings, Derek. Hey! Chris Franklin's Supermates turned me on to your program around last October. I've been listening to the episodes and digging into the archives. I finally had to write you to thank you for the episode on Donald F. Glute. I almost wrote you last week to express surprise that there is a song for the monster of Piedras Blancas and shock that it was not a parody of the 1975 hit Una Paloma Blanca. But on second thought, I've decided not to mention it. So if you just say that fast enough, you don't have to worry about whether or not you mispronounced it. Is that what just happened there? Oh, that one seemed easier. Oh, oh okay. I don't know. I, <laughs> I couldn't have pronounced it, so I don't know. Good job. Finding Glute's two books on the legends of of Frankenstein and Dracula in the library informed my monster kiddum the way the Crestwoods seem to have done for a slightly later group. I was aware of his Star Wars connections, but I see he has a lot of works I've missed. Sounds like time to catch up, starting with the Tales of Frankenstein. Jack B. And the B is bold. That was... (laughs) <laughs> yes, but it's bold. That's His name is now Jack e- Bold. Right. No, that that's just because I hit a typo when I was putting the email in a document. I know, but from now on, he's Jack Bold. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I hope he's okay with that. Jack, thank you for writing in. And Chris Franklin does awesome work in the House of Frankenstein. I've, I gushed about it last week. I that's can right. I gushed it again this week. I'll make sure the promo is played somewhere in this episode. You've already heard it by now. Don Glute was so cool to chat with. He was mm-hmm. so laid back and so just welcoming and he invited me out to the world premiere 
I can't get there, unfortunately. No, it's it's a surprising amount of money. Yeah, it's it's a big chunk of change to get from Portland to LA right well, on short notice. Maybe it's not big for some people. It's big for us. It's big for us. Yeah, on <laughs> short notice. It's yeah, especially. That said, I did go ahead and pre order the movie. Oh. I probably should have told my wife about that one. Possibly, I did it. especially if you were gonna talk about it during the show. If I do it on the show in front of other people. I can't say no. Right. <laughs> I'm onto your ways. Oh, oh. On to your ways. Oh no, no. I did pre-order. <laughs> it was cheap, like nineteen bucks. Yeah, I pre-ordered two hundred dollars of coffee. Okay. <gasps> You're pretending you no. would not be that okay with it. I know that you drink it is the thing. It won't go bad. <laughs> We don't have $200 to spend on coffee. Now I'm irritated that you weren't irritated. No. We, we, well, we have 180 to spend on coffee because I spent 20 on Tales of Frankenstein. <laughs> you know what, listeners? If you want to make it easier for me to afford Tales of Frankenstein, I'll make sure there's a link for you to buy your very own copy through Amazon and my Amazon affiliate link. Oh, I thought you were going to say buy Brenda coffee. <laughs> or you can buy Brenda coffee. That's true, too. I, I do have a coffee page set up. I forget what the exact address is. It's not actually coffee. The idea is that you can give people a couple of dollars enough for a cup of coffee. Oh, I but was really got, excited for a minute. Really excited Damn about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net so you can go in and find Tales of Frankenstein to order for yourself. The other reason I want to do this, not just for the affiliate link, but why are you looking at me like that? I'm still waiting for the coffee. Oh, okay. The Nespresso <laughs> coffee. <laughs> Amazon had trouble finding it when I typed oh. in Tales of Frankenstein because there's also a short Tales of Frankenstein that was a TV presentation, part of an anthology series mm. featuring, I believe, Lon Chaney in the role. Or actually, am I mixing that up? I think I'm mixing. Anyway, Amazon has another version of Tales of Frankenstein coming up when you do a search for it. And Don's movie does not come up first in the search results. So if you just go to my website, I'll make sure there's a way for you to go directly to it to pre-order it yourself if you're a physical media person. If you're not, yeah. it will also be available video on demand, iTunes, and all the other video on demand streaming outlets that he's connected to. Look at you easing people's way. That's right, man. That's right. And the affiliate link thing is like five cents. So to justify the 20 I spent, what's the math on that? <laughs> well. Every listener needs to buy two copies. And then <laughs> that'll get you 10 cents. Wait, are you, you saying there's only one listener? <laughs> what, what just happened? Just saying if they buy two copies, that's 10 cents. <laughs> Your one listener <laughs> will buy two copies. If you're the one listener who buys two copies of Tales of Frankenstein, let me know. I want to hear from you. <laughs> All these people writing in, they're not listeners. They're just making... <laughs> they're just names you made up. Actually, okay, you're on to me. <laughs> I even changed my Wait. voice to sound like Rich. Rich hasn't been a real person since 2003. <laughs> He's been me this whole time. <laughs> so does that mean you're going to go buy two more copies of Frankenstein? Oh, you're on to me again! <laughs> so that you only spent $19.90. <laughs> All right. Oh, boy. Donald F. Glute? Derek, that is Monster Kid royalty right there. When I was 13 years old, I... Bleh. Yeah? <sighs> when I was... Oh, and it, he wasn't 19. What's wrong? <laughs> I just made up that whole sentence. <laughs> I didn't put that in the email that I made up. <laughs> <laughs> 
When I was 13 years old, all I wanted for Christmas was the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back. In fact, I still have it with Dawn's name right there on the cover. Brenda made a brilliant suggestion about sharing some of the images from InfoGothic, and I'd be very happy to. I've attached some web resolution JPEGs of selected spreads, which you are welcome to use if you want to. I'm not sure exactly how, but that's entirely up to you. Sorry, as if you didn't have enough to do. Best wishes to you both and kitties from the future. Al. (laughs) Because he's in... Australia. He's 20 hours ahead of us. That's right. That's right. So uh, he did some of those graphics, and I'll put them up on Monster He did send you those graphics? Yes. He you- sent them to me. <laughs> he sent them to me. So you're oh. still stuffed up from I am a the whole bit. allergy attack you had when you took the kitties to the vet. Mm-hmm. So he sent me graphics. Yes. I will take those that have been sent, <laughs> and I'll put them on the website. Uh, monsterkidradio.net again so check that out as well as a link to Talos Publishing where you can pre-order your own copy of Yay. the book by the way I did that too <laughs> <laughs> you think you it's like you have all, you think you have all this money to spend well it's just I want to make sure you know so when things start coming that's what happens normally right <laughs> we get a pack of four DVDs and I'm like what is going on <laughs> that hasn't happened in weeks <laughs> We need a little, like, Derek hasn't ordered stuff without telling Brenda in however many weeks. That's brilliant. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. We need that. We have a whiteboard in the hallway. We can put it on the whiteboard. Oh, that's amazing. It's just going to make me sad every time I see it. It's not like we got the money to spend, honey. I know. I know. But it's Alistair Hughes' book. I know. And I want to support the guy. Yeah, of course. He was in this episode. You guys and gals heard him earlier. His enthusiasm is genuine and everything that he's about. Man, I'm just so excited for that book and so excited for him to have this happen for him. I mean, he's a great artist, great author. Great great idea. Great idea. He's a great guy. I'm really excited about it. You want to do a voicemail? You run the show, you pick the flow. Okay. Hey, Derek. It's Todd from the Haunted Cinema. Just checking in. I haven't, I know I haven't checked in lately. I've been super busy here at the Haunted Cinema with Halloween time. I've got uh, a couple big projects going on. We've got the series on how to make a horror film by uh, filmmaker Jeff Swerden. And then I've got Pete and Felice from the Devil's Workshop, his series on how to make monster masks. So that's been taking up a lot of my time, plus other projects, the one that you're helping me on. And I, I really super appreciate uh, the work you're doing there. But I did want to talk. I'm, I'm a little bit behind on my podcast. I'm behind on Monster Kid Radio. i got to be honest. Um, but I want to talk about the monster rallies, even though that was a few episodes ago. I really enjoy the rallies. You and Steve Sullivan do a great job with them. Uh, one suggestion, and, and I can't believe you haven't thought of it before this point, but maybe you have. You should add a category for best soundtrack or best film score. I'm like you. I love film scores. And I think, especially as we start moving into the later decades and the later years of each decade, uh, film music became more and more important to the movie themselves. And, and there were some great musicians and making great soundtracks for the films. So just a suggestion, maybe add that in. That would be kind of fun. I'd like to see some of these guys uh, get recognized for what they do as well. Other than that, I am slowly catching up to my Monster Kid Radio listening. 
Please have a great Halloween. And we'll see you soon. Bye. What do you think? About best soundtrack? Yeah. Well, I considered it when I mm. first started the rallies. Mm-hmm. But I know that not everybody nerds out about monster movie music the way I do. So I, I didn't go with it. And then also... A lot of the movies in the 40s and especially in the 50s from lower budget studios used a lot of stock music. Not even lower budget. Universal did it all the time. Used a lot of stock music or repeated the music over and over and over again. And oftentimes didn't give people credit for creating the music in the first place. It was part of the Universal Library, that sort of thing. That said, I do want to do something with music down the line. And it is something that I'm looking at at 2019 doing something recognizing monster movie music in some way, maybe a series spotlighting like Hans J. Salter, James Bernard, a lot of the iconic people who do music. So we'll see. Um, But definitely something I'd be interested in doing. And it sounds like he might be a person to talk to about that. So you're saying because the studios didn't give credits? I'm saying that because the studios didn't give credit, sometimes it's hard to know who actually did the music. What if you instead went with best use of music to accompany a film? So it's more about how they matched it up and made use of it? Maybe. I don't know if I want to inject it into the rallies itself. Oh, well, way to poop all over someone's great idea. No, it's not that. And and I was about to explain (laughs) why. uh, Because we already have started the rallies and to retroactively go back it just feels awkward to me but like i said i want to do some special stuff with music todd i'll drop you an email here in a few weeks and maybe next year we can plan something and i'll get you involved uh, also todd thank you for uh involving me in the project you're working on and yeah that's fun too i'm doing some transcription for him oh uh, i thought you were being all secret squirrel also say st- Say transcription again. I am all phlegmy in the back of my throat. Oh, that's that's attractive. I know, right? We have to stop podcasting right now. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Woohoo. Um, <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Never tran- mind. Transcription. I'm doing some transcription for him. Uh, the interview that I'm transcribing is awesome. I can't wait for you guys and gals to see it over at the Haunted Cinema. And I think there's a link on the website. So check it out. Let's do the other voicemail. Oh. Hi, Derek and the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Clear calling in with a weird Saturday report. On Saturday, my 16-year-old and I went to the 99W Drive-In in Newburgh, Oregon, and we saw 2018's Venom. Now, why am I calling into Monster Kid Radio about a superhero movie? Well, it's not really a superhero movie. Venom is hardly a superhero in the first place. And this movie has about as much to do with the source material as The Greatest Showman had to do with the actual life of P.T. Barnum. In other words, some of the names are the same. Uh, as far as characterization goes, this is not your comic book Eddie Brock. <laughs> but uh, it is a monster movie. The symbiotes, because there are more than one in the movie, are definitely monsters. And as far as the aesthetic goes... This made me think a lot of good old fun monster movies. Uh, there was silliness and scariness and violence, although certainly the scariest performance at all was in one of the, the after or mid credit sequences, Woody Harrelson makes a cameo and is just hands down the scariest thing in the movie. But it's a lot of fun. Uh, I've seen a lot of people just being super critical of it, and I can understand that, you know, especially if they're big Venom fans from the comics, which I'm not really anyway. I see why this would not 
uh, be appealing to them. But I went to it with a different attitude. And, you know, almost as soon as we start getting the, the symbiotes, the creatures, I'm like, wow, this is like a classic horror movie just with, well, I'm not going to say 2018 special effects, more like 2016 special effects. But, uh, you know, it's updated, and I thought it was a lot of fun. So, you know, maybe wait till it gets to a cheap theater. You know, certainly seeing it at the drive-in was a, a bargain experience. But Alex and I both had a lot of fun, and I think you could too. So that's it for now. I'll talk to everyone later. Bye-bye. So when I got the voicemail, I have to admit, I was like, why are you calling me about Venom? <laughs> because it's certainly not a classic monster movie. But, you know... My interest has peaked a little bit more. I, I didn't want to see it in the theaters uh, myself. I, I was ever a big Venom fan to begin with in the comics as well. I have heard that the special effects, the computer work does seem a little more primitive compared to what we're seeing now. Hmm. But the pacing felt like a monster movie, huh? Huh. Interesting. Did you, you didn't have any interest in it, did you, hon? I mean, not particularly. I mean, you haven't. You've watched... Two Marvel, three Marvel movies. No, yes, you have. Okay. Iron Man and the Two Garden Guardians. Okay. So uh, you're not really a superhero film no, person. No, no. So hmm. there was a commercial that came out early on that made it seem more sci-fi. Right. And I was like, hmm, possibly. Yeah, and then a- it was just a lie. <laughs> a horrible lie. Well, the best part of this podcasting right now that is truly not great podcasting uh-huh. is Gilly behind you. Oh. <laughs> Every time you look at me, and Gilly's like popping up from the side <laughs> with Zarma, and he's sparkly. Gilly is this Halloween decoration. Have we had him for two years now? Is it two year. years? We picked him up at Target like after Halloween, this kind of, I don't know what you mean. I know, he's this. like a, a, a roundish lump, <laughs> green lump with feet, arms. And ear things. Kind and of. he's so happy. He's smiley. <laughs> and he's super cute, right? But then yeah. you turn the light on inside and everything on him, like his eyes and mouth, just go black. <laughs> and then it's kind of creepy Which is <laughs> at awesome. that point. He's very creature from the Black Lagoon inspired. At least I think that's what they were going for, which is mm-hmm. why we call him Gilly. Mm-hmm. So. But Derek is sitting right in front of him. And so every time Derek shifts, Gilly pops out with a big smile like, hey, what's up? <laughs> If there's enough call for it, I'll put a picture of Gilly on the website. <laughs> well, so if you have to do both of them, one where his yes. he's just black outlines of a <laughs> of a smile and eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have one more email. This came right. from our friend Micah Harris. Derek, Micah, the return of Dracula came up in an extended aside a few episodes ago. This little production is quite an interesting American counterpoint to the more famous British horror of Dracula that came out around the same time. I'll go on record. Francis Letterer. Letterer? Oh, thumb, oh darn it. I think it's Letterer. That's okay. how I've always said it. Francis Letterer is perhaps the most hateful, cruelest Draculas ever put on screen. I mean, the first thing Dracula does before moving in with the Cleaver family is kill the little boy's cat. Spoiler <gasps> alert about Return of Dracula, by the way. I mean, how old is it? True. <laughs> 
but there's more coming. What possible motivation could he have? Sure, Mr. Boots, or whatever the delightful sobriquet the cat went by, had been in the cave where Dracula was storing his coffin, but is it doubtful the cat was going to trot down to the police station first thing and talk like a canary, or (laughs) (laughs) ride him out? (laughs) And who does this Dracula pick as his first victim, not counting Mr. Boots? A blind orphan who apparently kept getting passed over since she's still at the orphanage, but old enough to have helped vote Eisenhower in for both terms. And here comes Dracula to make this lonely woman feel wanted and beautiful for the first time in her life. Maybe I just subscribe to a higher standard, but this abusive boyfriend strategy seems a little bit beneath the Prince of Darkness and the Lord of the Carpathian Manor. And, of course, the snake gives her her sight back just in time to see the snake coming down. (laughs) What a piece of work. (laughs) So is it any wonder I love this movie? (laughs) It's like no other Dracula movie before or since. And the scene where the heroine is going through Dracula's etchings and finds a painting he's done of her already in a coffin... Pretty chilling. Serial killer stuff for a vampire movie. And you have to love the international Drac Squad, who for some reason thinks sunset is the opportune time of day to show up at Dracula's crypt to kill him. I think there's some counterintelligence going on there. Have they noticed anybody in the group putting down the occasional fly or spider? (laughs) Well, let's not be too hard on them. Addictive personality types are pretty good at hiding their behavior. As for Ega... I only have one word. Wee! 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 Although I do think the Lord of the Rings movies might have been even better if Arch Hall Jr. had essayed the role of Frodo. <gasps> oh, that would be brilliant, and that sounds like a Photoshop challenge. The Don Glute interview was well done. One of your best. And as much as I've been anticipating tales of Frankenstein while I was listening to the podcast, my enthusiasm amped up. We're talking Kenneth Strickfadden level kilowatts here. Yes. Turns out my friend Gary Woolard got to go shopping some years back with one of the stars of Tales of Frankenstein, Jerry Lacey, when Gary got to be the chauffeur to some of the stars of Dark Shadows at a con. He used his own truck, and, since I have sat in the same passenger side many times, I can say I've rested my buns where the winsome Maggie Evans placed hers. And I didn't even have to use a toilet in the servants' quarters at the Collinwood to do it. Wow. (laughs) In another personal tie-in with your latest episode, Tom Garganis, who gave you the report on the double feature of Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein that played in Durham, North Carolina, was my co-creator of the Mexican wrestling superhero El Espectro for our college newspaper comic strip page. He was, in fact, the artist on the episode I sent you featuring the pinata made out of paper mache from the pages of the Necronomicon. (laughs) Which is just brilliant. Yes. Congratulations on the success of your Plan 9 project, and also on Joshua Kennedy's House of the Gorgon, with which... You're involved getting some coverage in the new issue of Little Shop of Horrors. Best to Brenda and the cats. Don't let them watch Return of Dracula, though. Francis Litterer might be a bit too much for them. Micah Harris. 
Uh, I haven't seen the latest issue of Little Shop of Horrors magazine, but I know that Dan Day Jr., I believe he was the one who wrote the article about House of the Gorgon. When I, I can't wait to read it. I actually have an interview with Dan Day uh, shortly after his scenes wrapped, production wrapped. Mm. And I've been sitting on it. I'm going to release it closer to the release of House of the Gorgon. Overall. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, just to kind of, you know, prime the pump. That sort of, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, the Don Glute interview was a lot of fun. Yeah, so cool it seems dude. like a lot of people really enjoyed it. Yeah, Don's a good guy, and I'm going to have him on the show down the line for something else. Mm. Don't know what yet, but we'll figure something out. He mm. seemed like he wanted to come back, so that makes me happy. <laughs> Return of Dracula. Yes. I love Return of Dracula. Okay, but what's this about killing the poor kitty? Okay. It's awful. And then the blind girl. Well, it sounds like Dracula's like working his way up to, okay, I can, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have any confidence when he first wakes up. <laughs> So he goes for easy prey. So he goes for the orphan. Yes. Okay. And and the random cat. Okay. Francis Lederer, for my money, is one of the best screen Draculas. He's a terrible person and he does terrible things. But if it makes you feel not, any better. Not Francis. Dracula. Okay. His Dracula. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, though, Francis Lederer also plays Dracula on an episode of Night Gallery, and instead of killing cats and orphans, he kills Nazis. So the, oh. the, the karmic scales can balance a little bit. Oh, yes. I don't know. It takes a lot of Nazis to make up for a blind orphan left at the orphanage for years and a cat. It does. <laughs> it, it really does. <laughs> oh, the only time she gets... I want the story from her point of view. The years at the orphanage, the man that comes to save her, and then the rest of our miserable life. You know, it's one of it would be one of those movies that makes you think, what's the point of life? <laughs> Existence is pain. If this <laughs> if this movie was in the public domain, that'd be a fun writing project to take on and, and publish. <laughs> her sad life. Probably it was Oh, no, Mr. Boots was somebody else's cat. Yeah. But it'd be awful if it was her cat. So, Mr. Boots, I, it's never really quite ex said for sure that he belongs to the family there. He's kind of it's a... It's probably the poor blind orphan's no, cat then. No, no, yes. no. But he I mean, a, her life is nothing but pain. He spends a lot of time outside, so he might just be like the neighborhood cat. He's like a communal cat. Communal cat. It's know. probably the blind orphan's cat. It's not the and blind she's orphan's like, cat. Where's my cat? I've lost my cat. No, oh, little... I feel terrible. Where's uh, my cat? You need to see the movie. <laughs> it's actually really good. I think you would like it. Okay. It's a good flick. It's but really right now, flick. I'm just thinking from her poor life of misery <laughs> and sadness. <laughs> she's not sad. I mean, she's a, uh, you know. It's because she doesn't know any good. She doesn't know any better. And she never does. That's the thing. That's the problem. But she... <laughs> <laughs> like seconds before she dies, it sounds like she gets to see it for the first time. Well, yeah. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the feedback. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So if you want to send an email in, monsterkidradio at gmail.com, you can also send a recording in like Rich did. So you can do that, and I'll include that in a future episode. We've got one more episode before Halloween. Mm. So if there's anything happening in your neck of the woods, Halloween-wise, that you think Monster Kids might want to join you for, send it in to me, and I'll read it here on the show, or Brenda will read it here on the show, mm. or we'll play a recording of it here on the show. I know Tom Garganis on Twitter said that there might be some other things that he's going to call in about, which would be awesome. Rich, thanks for calling in everything that you yes. did about everything going on in your area. 
I'm stoked, man. There is so much good stuff happening for me this month. <laughs> oh, Brenda's going to be a Halloween widow. That's okay. I just want you to watch the budget. Of course. I mean, pre-ordering movies aside. <laughs> and books. I haven't pre-ordered any books. Oh, I did. Uh, no, I did. That's right. I'm sorry. I did pre-order. I was trying to go through my Amazon account in my head. It's like, oh, no, there's no books on that pre-order list. It's all movies. Mm. <laughs> Wait, there's more than one? Well, multiple copies. You told me to do two copies of no, I didn't. So while we've been recording, <laughs> while you have your back to me checking the voicemails, I was pulled out my phone, opened up my dummy account, so I get like five cents back on mm, it. Mm. <laughs> we. <Whee. laughs> the long hair of death. Our story takes place at the end of the 15th century. A time when the powers of darkness were at their strongest, and man lived in fear of the unknown. A time when witch-burning was a common occurrence, a public spectacle. The Long Hair of Death. will chill your spine and keep you gripped in your seat as you watch one of the most incredible stories of all time unfold before your eyes. You will see how the curse of a dying witch comes true as a village is ravaged by the plague and a man is hounded by his conscience and driven to commit one foul murder after another as he tries to satisfy his warped ambition. unusual, unforgettable film. Do not miss 
The Long Hair of Death. Double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space, and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program... A man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Like I said, there was a lot, more so than normal. Thank you for sticking around to the very end of this episode. I know I had a lot of stuff in here, and I hope you guys and gals had as much fun listening to it as I did creating it, recording it, listening to it again, and then editing it. Man, I had a blast putting it together, and I couldn't do the show without my amazing contributors. Everybody that calls in, everybody that writes in, everybody that agrees to be on the show, everybody that sends in segments, my wife Brenda and you guys and gals who are listening to the show right now, you make this worth it. Especially this time of year, I think we all want to celebrate the classic monsters, the monster kid stuff, and man, I'm just happy to celebrate it with you guys and gals. So much so that on Halloween, I'm going to be streaming movies all day through Rabbit TV. What you want to do is go to Rabbit TV, which is R-A-B-B dot I-T. You see it spells rabbit, but there's a dot in the middle. Rabbit TV. And then send a friend request to me. My username at Rabbit TV is Monster Kid Radio. All one word, but the M, the K, and the R are capitalized. I don't know if capitalization matters so much, but it's all one word. If it doesn't work, and I've heard reports that sometimes it doesn't, Contact me either by email or on Twitter or on Facebook and let me know what your user ID is and I'll find you. But one or the other, I want to get you on Rabbit TV because on Halloween day, starting in the morning, I'm thinking probably about 9-ish a.m. Pacific time, I'm going to start showing movies on Rabbit TV slash Monster Kid Radio. And not only am I going to be showing movies, there will be a live chat window going the entire time so we can chat about the film's while we watch them. I don't know what the film lineup's going to be yet, but I have some ideas, and I, I don't know. Should I post what the lineup's going to be, or, or should I leave it as a surprise? You let me know by emailing me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave me a voicemail and let me know what you think. Our voicemail number is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. You can always contact me on Twitter and Facebook as well, but if you have any feedback specifically for the show, email and voicemail is the best way to go. Of course, this is over on our website at monsterkidradio.net, which is going to have everything you need. And the show notes for this episode is going to be quite lengthy because I'm going to have links to everything that Rich talked about, about what's going on in Kansas City, everything that I talked about, everything that's happening here in the Portland, Oregon area for Halloween, 
everything that I'm going to be doing because if you're in the area, I would love to meet you if you want to come out and, and do one of these things with me. It would be amazing. I will bring my recorder along, may bring my video camera along as well for some YouTube fun. We'll see. But I'd love to meet up with you. I'm going to be hard to miss. I'll be the guy with the recorder and looks like he's having the most fun in the room or in the line to get into the room. Also on our website, we've got links to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of the show, as well as everything else that we have going on here. You can find links to the music, the band that we played this week. That'll be there as well. Oh, and before we get too far away from it, Tales of Frankenstein is the Hammer Films production, well, actually a co-production with Columbia. It was going to be a TV series, and Tales of Frankenstein was like a TV pilot for this thing. Tales of Tomorrow was the anthology series that featured an adaptation of Frankenstein featuring Lon Chaney Jr. as the monster. I got them mixed up in my head earlier in the feedback segment. Also, in the show notes, you're going to find a link to the Monster Kid Radio Frankenstein poll. To celebrate 200 years of Frankenstein, we want to know what your favorite Frankenstein films are. Now, we know that there can sometimes be a difference between favorite film and what people consider the quote-unquote best Frankenstein film. So we have two categories. We want to know what your top five favorite Frankenstein films are, as well as what you consider to be the top five best Frankenstein films. And here's the kicker. It doesn't matter when they came out. It doesn't have to be a quote-unquote classic horror film. Also, it doesn't have to be strictly a Frankenstein movie. Maybe Frankenstein just shows up as a character. I can tell you right now, I'm probably going to include the Monster Squad on my personal list because I love that film. Frankenstein's in it, therefore it counts. Go to tinyurl.com slash poll. The deadline isn't until sometime next month, but we would love for you to get in there now so we can go ahead and start tabulating the results. Steve Turek, who recently had a birthday, is going to take all of this data and present to us, well, something. I'm not sure how we're going to do it yet, but he's going to be in charge of all the data. And, uh, you know, just to kind of stick it to him, why don't you go ahead and put Creature from the Black Lagoon in all five slots for Best Frankenstein film? Just, just be, I'm kidding. Don't do that. I mean, you can email me and tell me it's the best, but you just, okay, you know what? Never mind. Just go to tinyurl.com slash Frank poll to take part. I think we're at the point in the show where I need to tell you what's happening next week. And oh, it's going to be another good one. Two more guests next week. First, we're going to be talking about the movie, The Vampire Bat. And we're going to be doing that with friend of the show, Paul Curtis. Paul and I have actually been swapping messages back and forth for a long time. And I've wanted to have him on the show for a while. And finally... We're going to make it happen. That's not all that's going to be happening, though. We're also going to be talking about a new Dracula movie starring Bela Lugosi. Yeah, I'm serious. It's a new movie. It's called Dracula's Ghost, and it was created by Monster Kid and Monster Fan. Man, is he a fan. Craig Scott Lamb. Craig's going to be here next week to talk about that as well. What is Dracula's Ghost? Well, you're going to have to come back next week to find out. Of course, we'll have Kenny's famous Monsters of Filmland segment. We're going to have a call-in from Jeff Pollier with a weird Saturday report and maybe a weird Wednesday report. We've just got so much. And then, of course, if there's any feedback coming in, Brenda and I will present that next week as well. I'm excited to get to it, so much so that I'm going to put this episode to bed so I can go ahead and start working on episode 392. In the meantime, I ask you to remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Monster Surf Party. That's from the album Monster Beach Surf Party from Jared Kaywood. This came out earlier this month. 
And I love the song. I love the album so much so that next week we're going to play another song from this release. But don't wait till then. Head over to jaredkwood.bandcamp.com to check out the nine-track album, and you can buy a digital version of it for $7. If you do so, make sure you let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. (laughs) 